The following is a conversation with Sheldon Solomon, a social psychologist, a philosopher, co-developer of terror management theory, and co-author of The Warm at the Core on the role of death in life. He further carried the ideas of Ernest Becker that can crudely summarize as the idea that our fear of death is at the core of the human condition and the driver of most of the creations of human civilization. Quick summary of the sponsors, Blinkist, ExpressVPN, and Cash App. Click the links in the description to get a discount. It really is the best way to support this podcast. Let me say as a side note that Ernest Becker's book, Denial of Death, had a big impact on my thinking about human cognition, consciousness, and the deep ocean currents of our mind that are behind the surface behaviors we observe. Many people have told me that they think about death or don't think about death, fear death or don't fear death, but I think not many people think about this topic deeply, rigorously, in the way that Nietzsche suggested. This topic, like many that lead to deep personal self-reflection, frankly is dangerous for the mind. As all first principles thinking about the human condition is, if you gaze long into the abyss, like Nietzsche said, the abyss will gaze back into you. I've been recently reading a lot about World War II, Stalin, and Hitler. It feels to me that there's some fundamental truth there to be discovered in the moments of history that changed everything the suffering, the triumphs. If I bring up Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin in these conversations, it is never through a political lens. I'm not left nor right. I think for myself, deeply, and often question everything, changing my mind as often as is needed. I ask for your patience, empathy, and rigorous thinking. If you arrive to this podcast from a place of partisanship, if you hate Trump or love Trump, or any other political leader, no matter what he or they do, and see everyone who disagrees with you as delusional, I ask that you unsubscribe and don't listen to these conversations, because my hope is to go beyond that kind of divisive thinking. I think we can only make progress toward truth through deep, empathetic thinking and conversation, and as always, love. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but I give you timestamps so you can skip. But please do check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. This episode is supported by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Get it at Blinkist.com slash Lex for a seven-day free trial and 25% off after. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I'm a big believer in reading at least an hour a day. As part of that, I use Blinkist every day. And in general, it's a great way to broaden your view of the ideal landscape out there and find books that you may want to read more deeply. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Lex to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist.com slash Lex. Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. 
Get it at expressvpn.com slash lexpod to get a discount and to support this podcast. Have you ever watched The Office? If you have, you probably know it's based on a UK series also called The Office. Not to stir up trouble, but I think the British version is actually more brilliant than the American one, but both are pretty amazing. Anyway, there are actually nine other countries with their own version of The Office. You can get access to them with no geo restrictions when you use ExpressVPN. It lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from nearly 100 countries, giving you access to content that isn't available in your region. So again, get it on any device at expressvpn.com slash lagspod to get extra three months free and to support this podcast. This show is presented by the great, the powerful Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code LEXPODCAST. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. Since Cash App allows you to send and receive money digitally, let me mention a surprising fact about physical money. It costs 2.4 cents to produce a single penny. In fact, I think it costs $85 million annually to produce them. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store, Google Play, and use the code LEXPODCAST, you get $10, and Cash App will also donate $10 to first an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Sheldon Solomon. What is the role of death and fear of death in life? Well, from our perspective, the uniquely human awareness of death and our unwillingness to accept that fact, we would argue is the primary motivational impetus for almost everything that people do, whether they're aware of it or not. So that's kind of been your life work, your view of the human condition is that death, you've written the book, Warm at the Core, that death is at the core of our consciousness of everything, of how we see the world, of what drives us. Maybe can you, can you elaborate like what, how you see death fitting in? What does it mean to be at the core of our being? So I think that's a, a great question. And, you know, to be pedantic, I usually start you know, my psychology classes, uh, and I say to the students, okay, uh, you know, let's define our terms. And the ology part, they get right away. You know, it's the study of, and then we get to the psyche part. And understandably, you know, the students are like, oh, that means mind. And I'm like, well, no, that's a modern interpretation. Uh, but in, a, in a ancient Greek, it means soul, uh, but not in the Cartesian dualistic sense that most of us in the West think when that word comes to mind. And so you hear the word soul and you're like, well, all right, that's the non-physical part of me that's potentially detachable from my corporal container when I'm no longer here. Uh, but uh, Aristotle's who coined the word psyche, I think, um, he was uh, not a dualist. He was a monist. He thought that the soul was inextricably connected to the body, and he defined soul 
as the essence of a natural body that is alive. And then he goes on and he says, all right, uh, let me give you an example. If, um, if an axe was alive, the soul of an axe would be to chop. And if you can pluck your eyeball out of your head and it was still functioning, then the soul of the eyeball would be to see. You know, and then he's like, all right, the soul of a grasshopper is to hop. The soul of a woodpecker is to peck, which raises the question, of course, what is the essence of what it means to be human? And here, of course, there is no one universally accepted conception of the essence of our humanity. All right, Aristotle, uh, you know, gives us the idea of humans as rational animals. You know, we're homo sapiens, but not the only game in town. You got Joseph Heusinger, an anthropologist in the 20th century. He called us homo ludens, that we're basically fundamentally playful creatures. And I think it was Hannah Arendt uh, homo faber, we're tool-making creatures. Uh, another woman, Ellen Dizanayake, wrote a book called Homo Aestheticus. Uh, and following Aristotle and his poetics, she's like, well, we're not only rational animals, we're also aesthetic creatures that appreciate beauty. Uh, there's another take on humans. I think they call us homo narratans. Uh, we're all, we're storytelling creatures. And I, I think all of those uh, designations of what it means to be human are quite useful heuristically and certainly worthy of our collective cogitation. But what, what garnered my attention when I was a young punk was just a single line in an essay by a Scottish guy who was Alexander Smith uh, in, in a book called Dreamthorp. I think it's written in the 1860s. He just says right in the middle of an essay, it is our knowledge that we have to die that makes us human. And I remember reading that and I, in my gut, I was like, oh man, I don't like that, but I think you're onto something. And, and then William James, the, the great Harvard philosopher and arguably the first academic psychologist, it, it, he referred to death as the worm at the core of the human condition. So that's where the worm at the core idea comes in. And, and that's just an allusion to um, the story of Genesis back in the proverbial old days in the Garden of Eden, uh, everything was going tremendously well and, until the serpent tempts Eve to take a chomp out of the apple of the tree of knowledge, and Adam partakes also. And this is, according to the Bible, what brings death into the world. And from our vantage point, uh, the story of Genesis is a remarkable allegorical uh, recount uh, of the origin of consciousness, where we get to the point uh, where, by virtue of our vast intelligence, we come to realize the inevitability uh, of death. And so, uh, you know, the apple is beautiful and it's tasty. Uh, but when you get right into the middle of it, there's that ugly reality, which is our finitude. And then fast forward a bit, and uh, I was a, a young professor at Skidmore College in 1980, 
Um, my PhD is in experimental social psychology, and I, I mainly did studies um, with clinical psychologists evaluating the efficacy of non-pharmacological interventions to reduce stress. Uh, and that was good work, and I found it interesting. But uh, in my first week as a professor at Skidmore, I'm just walking up and down the shelves of the library, uh, saw some books by a guy I had never heard of, Ernest Becker. Uh, a cultural anthropologist, recently deceased. He died in 1974. Um, uh, after um, weeks before, actually, he was posthumously uh, awarded the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction for his book, The Denial of Death. Uh, and, and that was his last book? It was, it's actually his next to last book. I don't know how you pull this off, but he had one more after he died called Escape from Evil, and evidently, it was supposed to originally the denial of death was supposed to be this giant thousand page book that was both. And they split it up, and the what became Escape from Evil, uh, his wife Marie Becker finished. Well, be that as it may, in it is in the denial of death uh, where Becker just says it in the first paragraph, I, I, I believe. Uh, that the terror of death uh, and the way that human beings respond to it or decline to respond to it is primarily responsible for almost everything we do, whether we're aware of it or not, and mostly we're not. And, and so I, I read that first paragraph, Lex, and I was like, wow, okay, this dude- You're onto something. You're onto something. It's the same thing It's here. the same thing. And then it reminded me, I think, um, not to play psychologist, but, you know, let's face it, I believe there's a reason why we end up drifting where we ultimately come to. So I'm in my mid-20s. I got Ernest Becker's book in my hand. And the next thing I know, I'm remembering uh, when I'm eight years old, the day that my grandmother died. Uh, and, you know, the day before my mom um, said, oh, say goodbye to grandma. She's not well. And okay, so I was like, okay, grandma. And I knew she wasn't well, but I didn't really appreciate the magnitude of her illness. Well, she dies the next day. And it's in the evening and I'm just sitting there looking at my stamp collection. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to miss my grandmother. And then I'm like, no, wait a minute. That means my mother's going to die and, uh, after she gets old. And that's even worse. After all, who's going to make me dinner? And that bothered me for a while. But then I'm looking at the stamps, all the dead American presidents. Uh -huh. and, and I'm like, there's George Washington. He's dead. There's Thomas Jefferson. He's dead. My mom's going to be dead. Oh, I'm going to get old and be dead someday. And at eight years old, that was my first explicit existential crisis. I remember it being, you know, one of these blood-curdling realizations that I tried my best uh, to ignore for the most of the time I was subsequently growing up. But fast forward back to Skidmore College, mid-20s, you know, reading Becker's book in the 1980s, thinking to myself, wow, 
one of the reasons why I'm finding this so compelling is that it squares with my own personal experience. And then to make a short story long, and I'll, I'll shut up, Lex, but what, <laughs> what grabbed me about Becker, and this is in part uh, because I read a lot of his other books, um, there's another book, The Birth and Death of Meaning, uh, which is framed um, in, from an evolutionary perspective. And, and then The Denial of Death is really more framed from an existential psychodynamic vantage point. And, and as a, a young um, academic, uh, I was really taken by what I found to be a, a very potent juxtaposition that you really don't see that often. Yet usually evolutionary types are eager to dismiss the psychodynamic types and vice versa, and maybe only John Bowlby. Uh, you know, there's there's other folks, but uh, the attachment theorist uh, John Bowlby uh, was really one of the first serious academics to say these um, these ways of thinking about things are, are quite compatible. And can you comment on what's what a psychodynamics view of the world is versus an evolutionary view of the world, just in case people are not. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a fine question. Well, for the evolutionary types um, in general, are interested in um, how it is and why it is that uh, we uh, have adapted to our surroundings in the service of persisting over time and, and being represented in the gene pool thereafter you used to be a fish yeah we used to be a fish and i'll yeah and i would end up uh talking on a podcast so yeah how we came to be that way how we came to be that way and so whereas the existential psychodynamic types i would say are more interested in development across a single lifespan and but but the evolutionary types dismiss the psychodynamic types as overly speculative and devoid of empirical support for their views, uh, they, um, you know, uh, uh, they'll just say, these guys are talking shit, if you'll pardon the expression. Yeah. And of course, uh, you can turn right around and say the same about the evolutionary types. They, they are often and rightfully criticized, evolutionary psychologists, uh, for what are called the just-so stories, uh, where it's like, oh, this is probably why fill in the blank, is potentially adaptive. And my thought, uh, again, early on uh, was I didn't see any um, intrinsic antithesis between these viewpoints. I just found them dialectically compatible and uh, uh, very powerful when combined. So one question I would ask here is uh, about a science being speculative. You know, we understand so little about the human mind. You said you picked up Becker's book and, you know, it felt like he was onto something. That's the same thing I felt when I picked up Becker's book, uh, probably also in my early 20s. Uh, you know, I read a lot of philosophy, but it felt like the question of the meaning of life kind of, uh, you know, this seemed to be the most, uh, the closest to the truth somehow. It was onto something. So I, I guess the question I, I want to ask also is like, um, how speculative is psychology? How, like all of your life's work, <laughs> um, how do you feel, how confident do you feel about the whole thing? 
about understanding our mind. I feel confidently unconfident to have it bo both ways. Like, what do we make of psychology? What do we make starting with Freud, you know, starting um, just, just our, or even just philosophy, uh, even uh, the aspects of uh, the, the sciences, like, uh, you know, my, my field of artificial intelligence, but also physics, you know, it, it often feels like, man, we don't really understand most of what's going on here. And certainly that's true with uh, the human mind. Yeah, well, to me, that's the proper epistemological stance. <laughs> I don't uh, know anything. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it's the Socratic, uh, I know that I don't know, yeah. which is the first step on the path to wisdom. I, I would argue forcefully that we know a lot more than we used to. Mm. I would argue equally forcefully, uh, not that I have a PhD in the philosophy of science, but I, I believe that the Thomas Kuhns of the world are right when they point out that change is not necessarily progress. And so on the one hand, I, I do think we know a lot more than we did back in the day when if you wanted to fly, you put on some wax wings and jumped off a mountain. Yeah. On the other hand, I think it's quite arrogant when scientists, I'll just speak about psychological scientists, um, when they have the audacity to mistake statistical precision uh, for knowledge and insight. And when they make the mistake, in my estimation, um, that Einstein bemoaned, uh, and that's this idea that the mere accumulation of data uh, will necessarily result in conceptual breakthroughs. And so I, I like the, um, well, we're all, I hope, appreciative of the people who trained us. But I remember my first day in graduate school at the University of Kansas, uh, they brought us into a room and on one side of the board was a quote by Kurt Lewin or Levine, famous German uh, social psychologist. And, was nothing, and the quote is, there's nothing more useful than a good theory. And then on the other side was another quote by a German physicist. His name eludes me. And it was all theories are wrong. And I'm like, uh, which is it? And of course, the point is that it's both. Our, our theories are, I believe, powerful ways to direct our attention uh, to aspects of human affairs that uh, might render us um, better able to understand ourselves and the world around us. Now, I also, uh, as an experimental psychologist, uh, I adhere to the view uh, that theories are essentially hypothesis-generating devices, and that at its best, science is a dialectical interplay where you have theoretical assertions that yield testable hypotheses and that uh, either results in the corroboration of the theory, the rejection of it, or the modification thereafter. If we look at the existentialists or even like uh, modern uh, philosopher psychologist types like Jordan Peterson, I'm not sure if you're familiar with I know Jordan pretty well. <laughs> we uh, go way back, actually. If he were here with us today, we would 
he would be jumping in and uh, I believe very interesting and important ways. But yeah, we go back 30 years ago. He was uh, uh, basically saying our work is nonsense. <laughs> Let's get into this. Yeah. I'm sure I'll talk to Jordan uh, eventually on this thing. Yeah, going I, through some rough times right now. Oh, absolutely. Rough, and yeah. I and I wish him well. Um, J- Jordan was working on his maps of meaning and we were publishing our work. And I, I think Jordan at the time um, was concerned about our vague claims to the effect that all meaning is arbitrary. He takes a more Jungian as well as evolutionary view that I don't think is wrong, by the way, uh, which is that um, there are certain kinds of meanings that are more important let's say, religious types, and and that we didn't pay sufficient attention to that um, in our early days. So uh, can you try to uh, elucidate like what his worldview is? Because he's also a religious man. Uh, So what uh, what was this? What what was uh, some of the interesting aspects of the disagreements that then? Yeah, well, back in the day, I just said, you know, Jordan was a young punk. uh, We were (laughs) young punks. He was just kind of flailing in an animated way at some conferences saying that um, we. You're still both kind of punks. Yeah, we are both kind of punks. So I saw him three or four years ago. We spoke on a, it was an awesome day. We were in Canada at uh, the Ontario Shakespeare Festival where we were asked to to be on a Canadian broadcast system program. I think we were talking about Macbeth from a, um, a psychodynamic perspective. And I hadn't seen him in a ton of years. And we spent two days together, ha- had a great time. You know, we had just written our book, uh, The Worm at the Core. And he's like, you know, you, you're, you're missing a big opportunity. Every time you say something, you have to have your phone yeah, and you have course. to film yourself, and then you have to put it on YouTube. Yeah, uh, he was onto something that uh, you know. That just as a small tangent. Yeah, uh, it's it's almost sad to look at Jordan Peterson and somebody like yourself. After having done this podcast, I've realized that there is really brilliant people in this world, and oftentimes, especially like when they're, um, uh, I mean, it with love, are a little bit like punks. That's right. They they kind of do their own thing, and like the world doesn't know they exist as much as they should. And it's so interesting because most people are kind of boring. Yes. As, as, and then the interesting ones kind of go on their own, and there's not a smartphone no, recording. No, that's that's, and that's well, so interesting. But... He was onto something that um, I mean, it's interesting that he. I don't think he was thinking from a money perspective, but he was probably thinking of like connecting with people or sharing his knowledge. But uh, people Girl, don't often think that way. That's right. So may- maybe we can try to get back to, yeah. you're both brilliant people, and I'd love to get some interesting disagreements earlier and later about in, in your psychological work, in your sure. worldviews. Well, our disagreements today would be uh, along two dimensions. Uh, one is he is, and again, I wish he was here to correct me yes. um, when I say that he is more committed uh, to the virtues of the Judeo-Christian tradition, I see. Uh, yeah. particularly Christianity, and in a sense is a, a contemporary 
Kierkegaard of sorts when he's saying there's only one way to leap into faith. And I would take ardent issue with that claim on the grounds that that is one, but by no means not the only way uh, to find meaning and value in life. And so, and I see his... What's his warm at the core? What is, like, uh, so we're talking about a little bit of a higher level of discovering meaning. Yeah. What's his, uh, what does he make of death? Oh, I don't know. And this is where it would be nice to uh, have him here. He has, you know, from a distance, criticized our work as misguided. Having said that, though, when we were together, um, he said something along the lines that there is no uh, theoretical body of work in academic psychology right now for which there is more empirical evidence. And so I, I appreciated that. He's a great uh, researcher. He's a good clinician. The other thing that we will agree to disagree about uh, rather vociferously um, is uh, ultimately uh, political slash um, economic. So I remember being at dinner with him, mm -hmm. telling him that the next book that I wanted to write uh, was going to be called Why Left and Right Are Both Beside the Point. Mm -hmm. And my argument was going to be, and it is going to be, that both liberal and political, no, liberal and conservative political philosophy are each intellectually and morally bankrupt because they're both framed in terms of assumptions about human nature that are demonstrably false. And Jordan didn't mind me uh, knocking uh, liberal political philosophy on those grounds. That would basically be like Steven Pinker's blank slate. Mm -hmm. But he took issue um, when uh, I pointed out that um, actually it's conservative political philosophy, which starts with John Locke's assumption that in a state of nature, there are no societies, just autonomous individuals. Uh, who are striving for survival, that's one of the most obviously patently wrong assertions in the history of intellectual thought. And Locke uses that to justify uh, his claims about the individual right to acquire unlimited amounts of property, which is ultimately uh, the justification for neoliberal economics. And well, can, can you linger on that a little bit? Uh, sure. What's the? Uh, can you describe his philosophy again as view of the world and, sure. and what uh, uh, neoliberal economics is? Yeah, let me translate it in English. So yeah. basically, all, all all these days, anybody who says I'm a uh, I, I'm a conservative free market type. Mm -hmm. Um, you're following John Locke and Adam Smith, whether you're aware of it or not. So here's John Locke, who, by the way, all of these guys are great. So for me to appear to criticize any of these folks, it is with the highest regard. And also, uh, we need to understand, in my estimation, how important their ideas are. Locke is working in a time uh, where all rule was topped down by divine right. And he's trying desperately to come up with a, a philosophical justification to shift power and autonomy to individuals. 
And he starts in his second treatise on government, 1690 or so. He, he He says, okay, let's start with a state of nature. And he's like, in a state of nature, there's no societies, there's just individuals. And in a perfect universe, there wouldn't be any societies. There would just be individuals who, by the law of nature, have a right to survive. And uh, in the service of survival, they have the right to acquire and preserve the fruits of their own labor. Uh, and, but his point is, and it's actually a good one, you know, he's following Hobbes here. He's like, well, the problem with that is that people are assholes. And um, if they would let each other alone, then we would still be living in a state of nature, everybody just doing what they did to get by each day. But it's a whole lot easier, you know, if I see like an apple tree a mile away, well, I can go over and pick an apple. But if you're 10 meters away with an apple in your hand, it's a lot easier if I pick up a rock and crack your head and take the apple. Mm -hmm. And his point was uh, that the problem is that people can't be counted on to behave. They They will take each other's property. Moreover, he argued, if someone takes your property, you have the right uh, to you have the right to retribution in proportion to the degree of the magnitude of the, of the transgression. English translation: uh, If I take your apple, you have the right to take an apple back. Mm-hmm. You don't have the right to kill my firstborn. Mm-hmm. But people being people, they're apt to escalate retaliatory behavior, thus creating what Locke called a state of war. So he said, in order to avoid a state of war, people reluctantly give up their freedom in exchange for security. They they agree to obey the law and that the sole function of government is to keep domestic tranquility and to ward off foreign evasion in order to protect our right to property. All right, so now here's the okay, so you, property thing. Uh-huh. All right, so uh, Locke says, if you look in the Bible and in nature, there is no private property. And, but Locke says, well, surely you, if there's anything that you own, it's your body. And surely you have a right by nature to stay alive. And then by extension... Anything that you do where you exert effort or labor, that becomes your private property. So uh, back to the apple tree. If I walk over to an apple tree, that's everybody's apples until I pick one. And the minute I do, that is my apple. Right? And then he says, you can have as many apples as you want as long as you don't waste them And as long as you don't impinge on somebody else's right to get apples. Mm -hmm. All right, so far, so good. Yep. Uh, And uh, then he says, well, uh, okay, in the early days, you you could only eat so many apples. Or you could only trade so many apples with somebody else. So he was like, well, if you put a fence around a bunch of apple trees, 
those become your apples. That's your property. If somebody else wants to put a fence around Nebraska, that's their property. And everybody can have as much property as they want because the world is so big that it, there is no limit to what you can have if uh, you pursue it by virtue of your own effort. Mm -hmm. But then he says money came into the picture. And, and this is important because it's a, he noticed long before anybody, before the Freuds of the world, that money is funky because it has no intrinsic value. He's like, ooh, look at that shiny piece of metal uh, that uh, actually has, if you're hungry uh, and you have a choice between a carrot and a lump of gold in the desert, most people are going to go for the carrot. But his point is, is that uh, the allure of money uh, is that it's basically a concentrated symbol of wealth, but because it doesn't spoil Locke said, you're entitled to have as much money as you're able to garner, mm -hmm. right? Then he says, well, the reality is, is that some people are more, the word that he used was industrious. He said, some people are more industrious than others, All right? Today, we would say smarter, less lazy, more ambitious. He just said, that's natural. It's also true. Therefore, he argued, uh, uh, over time, some people are going to have a whole lot of property and other people not much at all. Inequality for Locke is natural and beneficial for everyone. Hmm. His argument was that, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats and that the truly creative and innovative are entitled to relatively unlimited worth because we're all better off uh, as a result. So the point very simply is that, well, that's based, and then you have Adam Smith, uh, you know, uh, in the next century uh, with the invisible hand where Adam Smith says, everyone pursuing their own selfish, that's not necessarily pejorative, if everyone pursues their own selfish interests, we will all be better off as a result. And what do you think is the flaw in that way of thinking? Well, there's two flaws. One is, is that, um, well, one flaw is, first of all, that, that it, it is based on an erroneous assumption to begin with, which is that there never was a time in human history when we were an asocial species. In a sense, you don't feel like that we're, there's a, this emphasis of uh, individual autonomy is a flawed premise like where there's a there's something fundamentally deeply uh interconnected between us i do i think that plato and socrates uh you know in the crito were closer to the truth uh when they started with the assumption that we were interdependent and they derived individual autonomy as a manifestation of a functional social system that's fascinating so when margaret thatcher you're too young uh, you know, in the 1980s, she said, societies, there's no such thing as societies. There's just individuals pursuing their self-interest. So uh, so that's one point where I would take issue respectfully with John Locke. Point number two is when Locke says in 1690, well, England's filled up um, 
so if you want some land, just go to America. It's empty. Or maybe there's a few savages there. Just kill them. So and, and uh, Melville does the same thing in Moby Dick, where he he thinks about, will there ever come a time where we run out of whales? Mm-hmm. And he says, no, but we have run out of whales. And so Locke was right, maybe, in 1690, that the world was large and had infinite resources. He's certainly wrong today, in, in my opinion. Also wrong is the claim uh, that the unlimited pursuit of personal wealth does not harm those around us. There, there is no doubt uh, that radical inequality is tragic psychologically and physically. It, it's, poverty is not that terrible. It's easy for me to say because I have a place to stay and something to eat. Uh, but as long as you're not starving and, and have a place to be, Poverty's not as challenging as being having the impoverished in close proximity to those who are obscenely wealthy. So the, it's not the any absolute measure of your well-being; it's the inequality of that well-being. That's it's quite right. painful. Um, so maybe just to uh, linger on the Jordan Peterson thing in, in terms of your. Uh, disagreement in his world too. So he went through quite a bit, it, you know, there's been a, quite a bit of fire, right? In, in his defense or maybe his opposition of the idea of equality of outcomes. So looking at the inequality that's in our world, looking at, you know, c- certain groups yep. measurably having an outcome that's different than other groups and then drawing conclusions about fundamental uh unfairness, injustice, inequality in the system. So like systematic racism, systematic sexism, systematic anything else that creates inequality. And he's been kind of uh, saying pretty simple things uh, to say that, uh, you know, the system for the most part is not broken or flawed. Yeah. That the inequality is part, the, um, the inequality of outcomes is part of our world. What we should strive for is the, uh, you know, equality of opportunity. Yeah, and I, I do not dispute that as an abstraction. But again, to back up for a second, I I do take issue with Jordan's uh, fervent devotion to the free market and his cavalier dismissal of Marxist ideas, which he has, uh, in my estimation, uh, mischaracterized in his public depictions this let's, is- let's get into it. so he he just seems to really not like um uh socialism marxism communism yeah uh, historically speaking sort of uh, i mean how would i characterize it i'm not exactly sure i don't want to again he's yeah not, he'll eventually we- be here to defend himself john locke unfortunately not here to defend exactly himself. <laughs> but what's what's your sense uh about marxism and and um the uh, the way Jordan talks about it, the way you think about it, from the economics, from the philosophical perspective. Yeah, well, I, I, if we were all here together, I'd say we need to start with Marx's economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 before Marx became more of a polemicist. And I would argue that Marx's political philosophy, he's a crappy economist, I don't dispute that, 
Uh, but his arguments about human nature, his arguments about the inevitably catastrophic psychological and environmental and economic effects of capitalism, I would argue every one of those has proven quite right. Marx maybe did not have the answer, uh, but he saw in the 18 whenever he was writing um, that inevitably uh, capitalism um, would lead to massive inequity, that it was ultimately based on uh, the need to denigrate and dehumanize labor, to render them, in his language, a fleshy cog in a giant machine, mm -hmm. and that it would create uh, a tension and conflict between those who own things and those who made things that over time would always, you know, the Thomas Piketty guy who writes about capital and just makes the point that return on investment will always be greater than wages. That means the people with money are going to have a lot more. That means there's going to come a point where the economic house of cards falls apart. Now, the Joseph Schumpters of the world, they're like, that's creative destruction. Bring it. That, that's yeah. great. So I think it's Niles Ferguson. He was, he's a historian. He may be at Stanford now. He was at Harvard. You know, he writes about the history of money and he's like, yeah, there's been 20 or whatever depressions and big recessions uh, in the last several hundred years. A and when that happens, half of the population or whatever is catastrophically inconvenienced. But that's the price that we pay for progress. Other people would argue and I would uh agree with them that I will happily sacrifice the rate of progress in order to flatten the curve of economic destruction. To put that in plainer English, um, I would um, uh, direct our attention to the social democracies that forgetting for the moment of whether it's possible to do this on a scale in a country as big as ours, on all of the things that really matter, uh, you know, gross domestic GDP or whatever, that's just an abstraction. But when you look at whatever the United Nations says, how we measure quality of life, uh, you know, life expectancy, education, you know, rates of alcoholism, suicide, and so on. The countries that do better uh, are the mixed economies. They're market economies that have high tax rates in exchange uh, for the provision of services that come as a right for citizens. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the question is, you've kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, uh, like as Marx described, uh, capitalism with a slippery slope. Eventually, things go awry in some kind of way. So that's the question: is when you have when you implement a system, yeah, how does it go wrong eventually? You know, the you know, eventually we'll all be dead. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, no, no. So, so uh, look, that no, that's right. So, uh, and then the criticism. I mean, I think these days, uh, unfortunately, Marxism as like is a dirty word. I, I say unfortunately because even if you disagree with a philosophy, yeah. it should you should 
like calling somebody a Marxist yeah. should not be a thing that uh, shuts down all conversation. No, that's right. And and the fact is, is I'm sympathetic with uh, Jordan's dismissal of the folks in popular, the talking heads these days who spew Marxist words. Um to me, it's like fashionable nonsense. I don't, do you know that book that the physicists wrote, Mocking? Uh, you're too young. So in the uh, 20 or so years ago. <laughs> We're all pretty young. Relative, yeah, that's uh, right. But they're, I think they're with these the NYU physicists. They wrote a paper just mocking the uh, kind of literary uh, postmodern types. And oh, it was, yeah. Oh, those kinds of, yeah. Yeah, and it was just nonsense. And of course, it was made the lead article. Um, and, and, you know, my poor is Marx wouldn't be a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> it, True. It, I've uh, read and listened to some of the work of uh, Richard Wolff. He speaks pretty eloquently about Marxism. I like him. Yes. Uh, he's uh, one of the only, uh, you know, one of the only people speaking about a lot about Marxism in the way we are now in, in a serious way, in a, in a sort of saying, you know, uh, what are the flaws of capitalism? Not saying like... Yeah, basically sounding very different. And people should check out his work. No, because, I because all this kind of work, this kind of outrage, mob culture, of uh, sort of demanding equal equality of outcome. That's not Marxism. It uh, is not Marxism. But uh, he 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 didn't say that. You know, he literally said each what was it like each according to their needs and each according to their abilities or something like that. So the question is the implementation, like. Absolutely. Well, humans are messy. So how does it go wrong? Like it is messy. There you go. Lex. It's messy. Brilliant. It's messy. And this gets back to my rant about the book that I want to try if I don't stroke out. Why left and right <laughs> are both beside the point. Yeah. You know, the the people are, uh the conservatives are right when they condemn liberals for being simple minded by assuming that uh, a modification of external conditions will yield changes in human nature. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, you know again, uh, that's where Marx and Skinner are odd bedfellows. You know, here they are just saying, oh, let's change the surroundings and things will inevitably get better. On the other hand, when um, conservatives say that uh, people are innately selfish and they use that as the justification for glorifying uh, the unbridled pursuit of wealth, well, they're only half right because it turns out that uh, we can be innately selfish, uh, but we are also innately generous and reciprocating creatures. There's remarkable studies, I think they've been done at Yale, uh, of you know babies 14 month old babies um if uh someone hands them a toy and then wants something in return babies before they can walk and talk will reciprocate all right fine if someone if they want a toy let's say or a bottle of water baby wants a bottle of water and i look like I'm trying to give it to the baby, but I drop the bottle so the baby doesn't get what she or he wanted. When given a chance to reciprocate, little babies will reciprocate because they're aware of and are responding to intention. Similarly, 
if they see somebody um, behaving unfairly to, to someone, they will not help that person in return. So, so my point is, is, yeah, we are selfish creatures at times, but we are also simultaneously uber-social creatures who are eager to reciprocate. And in fact, we're congenitally prepared to be reciprocators to the point where uh, we will reciprocate on the basis of intentions above and beyond what actually happens. How, how close, though, I mean, your, your work is on the fundamental role of the fear of mortality in, yeah. our, in ourselves. How fundamental is this reciprocation, this human connection to other humans? Oh, I think it's really innate. Yeah, I like think it's because, innate. yeah, bats reciprocate, uh, not by intention, but, uh, you know, this, I'm going here from uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, the selfish gene, you know, to... I love the early Dawkins. I'm less enamored uh, with like the, the early Beatles. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> and again, I say this with great respect, but uh, you know, Dawkins just points out that uh, you know reciprocation is just fundamental. Cooperation is fundamental. You know, it, it is the the. It's a one sided view of evolutionary takes on things when we see it solely in terms of individual competition. Uh, and it's it's almost uh, from a game theoretic perspective too, it's just easier to see the world that way. Yes, it's it it's easier to, I don't know, I, I mean, you see this in physics, uh, there's, there's a whole field of folks like complexity yeah. uh, that kind of embrace the fact that it's all an intricately connected mess and it's just very difficult to do anything uh, with that kind of science, but it seems to be much closer to actually representing what the world is like. So, like you put it earlier, Lex, it's messy. So, Go. left and right, you mentioned you're thinking of maybe actually putting it down on paper or something. Yeah, I would like to because ah, be great. what I would what what I would like to point out again, in in admiration of all of the people that I will then try and have the gall to criticize is look, these are all geniuses, um, Locke, genius. Adam Smith, genius, when he uses the notion that we're bartering creatures. So he uses that reciprocation idea as the basis of his way of thinking about things. But that's not at the core. The no. bartering is not at the core of human nature. It's not at, well, he says right. it is. He says we're fundamentally bartering creatures. Well, that doesn't even make sense then, because then what? how, how can we then be autonomous individuals? Well, because we're going to barter with an eye on on, on for self, so uh, for like ourselves, self interest. Yeah, but all right. So, but back to Adam Smith for a second. Lex is like Adam Smith. Here's he's got the invisible hand, and my conservative friends. I'm like, you need to read his books because he is a big fan of the free market, and this is my other uh, gripe with uh, folks who support just uh, unbridled markets. Adam Smith understood that there was a role for government for two reasons. One is, is that just like Locke, people are not going to behave with integrity. And he understood that one role of government is to maintain a, a proverbial, you know, even playing field. And, and then the other thing Smith said was that there's some things that can't be done well for a profit. And I believe he talked about education and public health and infrastructure. 
as things that are best done by governments uh, because you can't you can make a profit but that doesn't mean that the institutions themselves will be maximally beneficial yeah so i i would uh, i'm just eager to engage people by saying let's start with our most contemporary understanding of human nature which is that we are both selfish and tend to cooperate and we also can be heroically helpful to folks in our own tribe and uh, and of course how you define one's tribe becomes critically right. important but what some people say is look we let what would then be what kind of political institutions and what kind of economic organization can we think about to kind of hit that sweet spot? Hmm. And that, that would be, in my opinion, uh, how, how do we maximize individual autonomy in a way that fosters uh, creativity and innovation and the self-regard that comes from creative expression while engaging our more cooperative and reciprocal tendencies in order to come up with a system that is potentially stable over time. Because the other thing about all capital-based systems- The stability, it's is, fundamentally unstable. Yeah, because it's based on infinite growth. Uh, and you know, it's a positive feedback loop. Uh, to be silly, infinite growth is only good for malignant cancer cells and compound interest. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, we want to seek a steady state. And um, that yeah. would be, you know, so when Steven Pinker writes, for example, again, great scholar, but I'm going to disagree when he says the world has never been better. And all we need to do is keep making stuff and buying stuff. So your sense is the world sort of in disagreement with Steven Pinker that the world is um, like facing a potential catastrophic collapse in multiple directions. And, yes. And the fact that there are certain, like the the rate of violence in aggregate is decreasing, the, the death, you know, the quality of life, all those kinds of measures that you can plot across centuries that it's improving. That doesn't capture the fact that our world might be we might destroy ourselves in very painful ways uh, in the in the few, in the next century. Yeah. So I'm with Jared Diamond, you know, in the book Collapse, where he points out studying um, the collapse of major civilizations that it often happens right after things appear to never have been better. Mm. And in that regard, I mean, there are more uh, known voices that have taken issue uh, with uh, Dr. Pinker. I, I'm thinking of uh, John Gray, who's a, a British philosopher, and here in the States, I don't know where he is these days, but Robert J. Lifton, the psycho-historian. Yeah, they're both of my view, and which I hope is, by the way, wrong. Uh, but, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but, I, but, you know, between, um, you know, ongoing ethnic tensions, environmental degradation, economic instability, and the fact that, uh, you know, the world has become a petri dish of psychopathology. 
Like what really worries me is the the quiet economic pain that people are going through, the businesses that are closed, yeah. the dreams that are broken because you can no longer do the thing that you've wanted to do. And how I mentioned to you off camera that I've been reading um, the the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And I mean, the amount of anger and hatred and uh, on the flip side of that, sort of a nationalist pride that can arise from deep economic pain. Like what happens with that economic pain is you become bitter. Yep. You start to find the other, whether it's other European nations that mistreated you, whether it's other groups that mistreated you, yep. it always ends up being the Jews uh, <laughs> somehow somehow are at fault here. Yep. Uh, that's what worries me is where this quiet anger and pain goes in 2021, 2022, 2030. If you look, sorry to see the parallels. No, no, uh, no. Rise and fall of the Third Reich. But, you know, what happens 10, 15 years from now from what's because of the COVID pandemic that's happening now? And Lex, you make, a, a, I think, a really profoundly important point, you know, back to our work for a bit, or Ernest Becker, rather, you know, his point is, is that the way that we manage existential terror is to embrace culturally constructed belief systems that give us a sense that life has meaning and we have value. And in the form of self-esteem, which we get from perceiving that we meet or exceed the expectations associated with the role that we play in society. Well, here we are right now in a a world where, first of all, if you have nothing, you are nothing. And secondly, as you were saying before we got started today, a lot of jobs are gone and they're not coming back. And that's the where the self-esteem... That's where the self-esteem and identity come in. Where people, it's not only that you don't have anything to eat, you don't even have a self anymore to speak of because the, we typically define ourselves, you know, as Marx put it, you are what you do. Uh, and now who are you uh, when your way of life as well as your way of earning a living is no longer available? Yeah, and it feels like that... Uh, yearning for self-esteem that we could talk a little bit more because sure. you uh, it, about defining self-esteem is quite interesting. When the more I've read, sort of warm at the core, and just in general, your thinking it uh, made me realize I haven't thought enough about the idea of self-esteem. But the, the thing I want to say is, uh, it feels like when you lose your job, then it's easy to find it's it's tempting to find that self-esteem in a tribe that's not somehow often positive. That's exactly. It's, it's like a tribe that defines itself on the hatred of somebody else. So that's brilliant. And and this is what John Gray, the philosopher in the 1990s, he predicted what's happening today. It, he wrote a book about globalism. And actually, Hannah Arendt in the 1950s said the same thing in her book about totalitarianism. When she said that, um, you know, that economics has reached the point where most money is made not by actually making stuff. You know, you use money to make money. And uh, uh, therefore, uh, what happens is money chases money across national boundaries. 
ultimately governments become subordinate to the corporate entities whose sole function is to generate money. And what John Gray said is that uh, that will inevitably produce economic upheaval in local areas, which will not be attributed to the economic order. It will be misattributed to whoever the scapegoat de jour is, and the anger what and the distress associated with that uncertainty uh, will be picked up on by ideological demagogues who will transform that into rage. So both Hannah Arendt as well as John Gray, they, they just said, uh, watch out. We're going to have right-wing-ish populist movements uh, where demagogues who are the alchemists of hate, what makes them brilliant, is they don't they don't uh, the hate's already there but they take the fears and they expertly redirect them to who it is that I need to hate and kill in order to feel good about myself so back to your point Lex that's right so the self regard that used to come uh, from having a job and doing it well and as a result of that having adequate resources to provide a decent life for your family, well, those opportunities are gone. And yeah, what's left? So Max Weber, German sociologist at the beginning of the 20th century, um, he said in times of historical upheaval, um, we are apt to embrace. He was the one who coined the term charismatic leader, Mm -hmm. right? Seemingly larger than life individuals uh, who often believe or their followers believe are divinely ordained to rid the world of evil. Yeah. All right. Now, Ernest Becker, he used Weber's ideas in order to account for the rise of Hitler. Hitler was elected, and he was elected when Germans were in an extraordinary state of existential distress. And he said, I'm going to make Germany great again. All right, now, what Becker adds to the equation is his claim that what underlies our affection for charismatic populist leaders, good and bad, is death anxiety. All right, now, here's where we come in. We're egghead experimental researchers. You know, Becker wrote this book, The Denial of Death, and he couldn't get a job. People just dismiss these ideas as fanciful speculation uh, for which there's no evidence. Uh, and, and you've done some good experimental yeah, and here's work. Where, yeah, here's where I can be more cavalier and where what I would urge people, uh, like what you said, Lex, is ignore my histrionic and polemic language, if possible, <laughs> and yeah. step back, if you can, myself included, and let's just consider the the research findings because uh, in uh, september 11th 2001 people that are old enough to remember that uh, horrible day two days before um george w bush had the lowest approval rating in the history of presidential polling right three weeks later after he said we will rid the world of the evildoers 
And then a week or two after that, he said in a cover story on Time magazine that he believed that God had chosen him to lead the world during this, uh, to lead the country rather, during this perilous time. He had the highest approval rating. And so we're like, well, what happened? You know, what happened to Americans that their approval of President Bush got so high so fast? Well, our view following Becker is that 2001 was like a giant death reminder. Yeah. Uh, The people dying plus the symbols of American greatness, World Trade Center and and the, the Pentagon. So we did a bunch of experiments and most of our experiments are disarmingly simple. We have one group of people and we just remind them that they're gonna die. We say, hey, write your thoughts and feelings about dying. Or in other cases, we stop them outside, either in front of a funeral home or 100 meters to either side. Our thought being that if we stop you in front of a funeral home, then death is on your mind, even if you don't know it. And then there's other studies that are even more subtle, where we bring people into the lab and they read stuff on a computer. And while they're doing that, we flash the word death for 28 milliseconds. It's so fast, you don't see anything. And then we just measure people's reactions or behavior thereafter. So what we found in 2003, leading up to the election of 2004, was that Americans did not care for President Bush or his policies in Iraq in control conditions. But if we reminded them of their mortality first, they liked Bush a lot more. So in every study that we did, Americans like John Kerry, who was running against Bush, they like Kerry more than Bush. Policy-wise, in the control. In a control condition. Yeah. And, but if, if they were reminded of death first, then they like Bush a lot more. So by the way, just a small pause, you said they're disarmingly simple experiments. I think that's... Um... And people should read uh, Warm at the Core for some other descriptions. You have a lot of uh, different experiments of this nature. I think it's a brilliant experiment um, connected to the Stoics, perhaps, of uh, how your worldview on anything, on how delicious that water tastes Yes. after you're reminded of your own mortality. It's such a fascinating experiment that you could probably keep doing like millions of them to uh, draw insight about... Uh, the way we see the world. No, that's right, Lex, and I appreciate the compliment, not because we did anything, but because what these studies, many of which are now done by other people around the world in labs that we're not connected with, what I'm most proud about our work, I am proud of the experiments that we've done, but it's not science until somebody else can replicate your findings and independent researchers are interested in in pursuing them. It's such a fascinating idea. I don't I have to think about a lot about the experiments you've done and that you've inspired about the fact that death changes the way you see a bunch of different things. Uh, the, the, I think the Stoics t- talked about the, uh, I mean, in general, just memento mori, like just thinking about death and meditating on death is a really positive, not a positive, it's an enlightening way to uh, live life. So what do you think about that uh, at the uh, at the individual level, 
Like, what is the role about yeah. being bringing that terror of death, fear of death, to the surface, nice, and nice being life. cognizant of it? For us, that's the that's the ball game. Um, so, what we write in our book, and here we're just um, paying homage to the philosophers and theologians that come before us, is to point out that literally since antiquity. Um, there has been a consensus that to lead a full life requires, um, Albert Camus said, come to terms with death, thereafter anything is possible. And, and so you've got the, the Stoics and you've got the Epicureans and then you've got the Tibetan Book of the Dead and then you've got like the medieval monks that you know, worked with like a skull uh, on their desk. And the whole idea, I should back up a bit because and just remind folks that our studies, you know, when we remind people that they're going to die and we find that, yeah, they drink more water if yeah. a famous person um, is, is, you know, advertising it, uh, they eat more cookies they want more fancy clothes. They sit closer to people that look like them. It changes who they vote for. But all of those things, those are very subtle death reminders. You don't even know that death is on your mind. And so our point is, is that, and this is kind of counterintuitive, and that is that the most problematic and unsavory human reactions to death anxiety are malignant manifestations of repressed death anxiety. You know, we try and bury it under the psychological bushes, and then it comes back to bear bitter fruit. But what the theologians and the philosophers of the world are saying is it behooves each of us to spend considerable time. You don't have to be a goth death rocker, you know, wallowing in death imagery to spend enough time entertaining the reality of the human condition, which is that you too will pass, to get to the point well, where there is, uh, to lapse into a cliche, uh, the capacity for personal transformation and growth. Let's go personal for yeah. a second. Uh are you yourself afraid of death? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, and how much do you meditate on that thought? Like, uh, m maybe your own study of it <laughs> is a kind of escape from your own it mortality. Is absolutely, Lex. So you got it. <laughs> and um, like, if you figure out death somehow, you won't die. So no, no. Uh, so my my colleagues and good friends Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski, You know, we met in graduate school in the 1970s. We've been doing this work for 40 years, and we cheerfully admit, even though it doesn't reflect well on us as humans that I should just speak for myself, but I, I feel like there's a real sense in which um, doing these studies and writing books and, and lecturing has been my way of avoiding directly confronting my anxieties by turning it into an intellectual exercise. 
And um, and, and every once in a while, therefore, when I think that I'm making some progress as a human, uh, I have to remind myself that uh, that is probably not the case um, and that I have at times, like all humans, been more preoccupied with the implications of these ideas for my self-esteem uh, it's like, oh, we're going to write a book and maybe uh, we'll get to go on TV or something. Yeah. Well, no, that's not the same as to actually think about it in a way that it, you feel it rather than just think it. Yeah, like now, you did when you were eight exact, at first. Those, that's those, those exactly first right. So when I first read The Denial of Death, uh, I was so literally flabbergasted by it that i took a leave of absence for a year and just like did what would be considered menial jobs i I did construction work i worked in a restaurant and i i was just like wait a minute if if i if i understand what this guy is saying then i'm just a culturally constructed meat puppet (laughs) Doing That's, things uh, for reasons that I know not yeah. in order to assuage death anxiety. And I was like, that, that, that's not acceptable. Maybe another interesting person to talk about is Ernest Becker himself. Sure. So how did he face his death? Is there something interesting personal? I, I think so. There. So uh, uh, interesting to me is... Um, Becker, also from a Jewish family, claimed to be um, atheistic, uh, did not identify ultimately as Jewish. I believe he converted to Christianity, but was himself a religious person, and he said he became religious when his first child was born. Now, religious, what does that mean? Does he have a faith? And, well, let's talk more. Yeah. Most importantly, is the afterlife. He was What's his view on the afterlife. He was uh, agnostic on that, but he did. Um, it, now, the denial of death is. Um, there's a chapter devoted to Kierkegaard, uh, and he talks about for Kierkegaard, um, if you want to become a mature individual. You know, if you want to learn something, you go to the university. If you want to become a more mature individual, according to Kierkegaard, you got to go to the unit. You got to go to the school of anxiety. Uh, and what Kierkegaard said is that we have to let this vague dis-ease, put a hyphen between dis and ease, about death. Kierkegaard's point is you have to really think about that. You have to think about it and feel it. You got to let it seek in or seep into uh, your mind, at which point, uh, according to Kierkegaard, basically, you realize that your present identity is fundamentally a cultural construction. You didn't choose the time and place of your birth. You didn't choose your name. Uh, you know, you didn't choose necessarily even the social role that you occupy. You might have chosen from what's available in your culture, but not from the full palette of human opportunities. And so what Kierkegaard said is that 
we need to realize that uh, we've been living a, a lie of sorts. Becker calls it a necessary lie. Uh, and, uh, and we have to momentarily dispose of that. And, and so now Kierkegaard says, well, here I am. I, I have shrugged off uh, all of the cultural accoutrements that I have used uh, to define myself. And now what am I or who am I? This is like the ancient Greek tragedy where the worst thing was to be no one or no thing. Right, at this point, Kierkegaard said, you're really dangling on the precipice of oblivion. And some people tumble into that abyss and never come out. On the other hand, Kierkegaard said that what you can now do metaphorically and literally is to rebuild yourself from the ground up. And there's a, in the New Testament, there's something you have to die in order to be reborn. And Kierkegaard's view, though, is that there's only one way to do that. This is his proverbial leap into faith. And in Kierkegaard's case, it was faith in Christianity, that you can't have unbridled faith in cultural constructions. The only thing that you can have unequivocal faith in is some kind of transcendent power. All right, but of course, this raises the question of, well, is that just another death-denying belief system? Right. And at the end of the denial of death, Becker admits that there's no way to tell while still advocating for what is ultimately a religious stance. Now, one of the things that I don't understand, and I, I, Becker has been the, the most singularly potent influence in my academic and personal life, but a year or two ago, I, I um, started reading uh, Martin Heidegger. I'm reading Being in Time, and what I now wonder is why, um, why Becker who refers to Heidegger from time to time in his work, why he didn't take Heidegger more seriously, because Heidegger has this, is like a secular Kierkegaard. He's, he has the same thing, which is death, anxiety. Oh, and I should have pointed out that what Kierkegaard says is that death, anxiety, most people don't go to the school of anxiety. They flee from death, anxiety uh, by embracing their cultural beliefs. Kierkegaard says they then tranquilize themselves with the trivial. And I love that phrase. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful phrase because at the end of the denial of death, Becker's like, look, the average American is either drinking or shopping or watching television, and they're all the same thing. All right? Heidegger says the same thing. He says, look, and he acknowledges Kierkegaard. He says, what makes us feel unsettled. And evidently, that's an English translation of angst, that, it, that it's, we don't feel at home in the world. Heidegger says that's death anxiety. And one direction is the, the Kierkegaard one. He, Heidegger calls it a flight from death. You just unself-reflexively cling to your cultural constructions. And Heidegger borrows the term tranquilized, but he points out that he doesn't care for that term because tranquilized sounds like you're subdued, 
when in fact what most culturally constructed meat puppets do is to be frenetically engaged with their surroundings to ensure that they never sit still long enough to actually think about anything consequential. Heidegger says there's another way, though. He's like, yo, uh, what you can do is to come to terms with that death anxiety in the following way. Thing number one is to realize that not only are you going to die, but your death can happen at any given moment. So for Heidegger, if you say, I know I'm going to die in some vaguely unspecified future moment, that's still death denial because you're saying, yeah, not me, not now. Yeah. Heidegger's point is you need to get to the point uh, where you need to realize that, uh, you know, I need to realize that I can walk outside and, and uh, get smote by a comet. Or I can stop for gas on the way home and catch the virus and be dead in two days. Or any number of potentially unanticipated and uncontrollable fatal outcomes. But need, brilliant, by the way. Yeah, it, sorry. Uh, 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 to, to, to bring it into the now. Yeah, uh, the it is brilliant. I, I agree, Lex. And this yeah. is why I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why didn't Becker notice this? Because that's the being and time thing yeah. is, is it's got to be now. Right? And then he says, so, okay, so now I've dealt somewhat uh, with the, the death part. And now he says, now you've got to deal with what he calls existential guilt. And he says, well, all right, what you have to, you have to realize that, like it or not, you have to make choices. You know, this is Jean-Paul Sartre. We are condemned by virtue of consciousness to choosing. But Heidegger's a little bit more precise. He's like, look, as I was saying earlier, you're in reality, you're an insignificant speck of respiring carbon-based dust born into a time and place not of your choosing when you're here for a microscopic amount of time after which you are not. Mm -hmm. And for Heidegger, you have to realize that, like I said, I didn't choose to be born a male or Jewish, or in America, the offspring of working class people. And, and Heidegger, what he says is, yeah, but you still have to make choices and accept responsibility for those choices, even though you didn't choose any of the parameters that ultimately limit what's available to you. And moreover, you're going to not always make good choices. So now you're, you're guilty uh, for your choices. And then he uses the, the poet uh, Rilke. Yeah. He has a phrase, Becker uses it in The Denial of Death, the guilt of unlived life. I just love that. You have to accept uh, that you have already diminished and in many ways, amputated your own possibilities by virtue of choices that you've made or just as often have declined to make uh, because you are reluctant to accept responsibility. 
for uh, uh, for the opportunities that you are now able to create by virtue of seeing the possibilities that lay before you. So anyway, Heidegger then says, look, okay, so, uh, you know, I'm a professor and I live in America in the 21st century. Well, if I was in the third century living in a yurt in Mongolia, I'm not going to have an opportunity to be a professor. But what he submits is that there is some aspects of whatever I am that are independent of my cultural and historical circumstances. Mm. In other words, there is a me of sorts. Heidegger would take vigorous issue, and so would Heidegger scholars, because I'm not claiming to understand him. This is my classic comic book rendering. (laughs) But Heidegger's point is that you get to the point where you're able to say, okay, I am a contingent historical and cultural artifact, but so what? You know, if I was, uh, you know, now if I was transported a thousand years in the past in Asia, I'd be in the same situation. I would still be conditioned by time and place. I would still have choices that I could make within the confines of what opportunities are afforded to me. And then Heidegger says, if I can get that far, in this is his language. He says that there is a transformation, and he literally, he calls it a turning. You're turning away from a flight from death, and you are allowed, You therefore, you see a horizon, is his word, of opportunity that makes you in a state of anticipatory resoluteness with solicitous regard for others that makes your life seem like an adventure perfused with unshakable joy. All right, let me unpack That's those beautiful. things. It is beautiful. It is. I love, Lex, that you're resonating to the time thing. So he's like, okay, yeah. we already talked about now, anticipatory is, is already hopeful because it's looking forward. Yeah. Right, to be resolute, it, it, it means to be steadfast uh, and, and to just have confidence in um, what you're doing moving forward. All right, uh, solicitous, I had to look up all these words, by the way. It, is, it just means that uh, you are concerned about your fellow human beings. Uh, and, but I love the idea uh, even if it seems allegorical, I don't mind that at all. This idea, you said love earlier, and I think that when Heidegger is talking about being solicitous, that's as close as he can get. Uh, there's a, an Italian... Yes, I can try. So what was that line again with the solicitous of the... Oh, okay, I mean, so, the, the whole thing of, of turning away from death and the... Yeah, he, I mean, all the words you said are just beautiful. I love those words, yeah. Anticipatory resoluteness that is accompanied with solicitous regard to our fellow humans, which makes life appear to us to be an ongoing adventure that is permeated by unshakable joy. Now, again, Heidegger's not uh, Mary Poppins. This I just got a tattoo. Uh, uh, no, I, 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 this no, is great. I, I just love Wait, the, is that exact quote. No, be, I'm piecing together. These are his exact words that 
and I spent the last two years reading almost everything that I can find because I want to, I'm, I'm sick of death. You said it, so I want to second what you say, Lex. So it's not about death. It, it's the Sherwood Anderson guy. He's a novelist that I like about, uh, he wrote a book called Winesburg, Ohio. And oh, now I'm going to forget what he said on his tombstone. Uh, but, you know, it, it was something to the effect, oh, he said, life, not death is the great adventure. The, the point being is that, you know, the, the, to consider that we must die and the existential implications of that, really the goal, the way I see it, is getting from hate to, to love. Yeah. And, and I feel like Heidegger has a way of thinking about things that moves us more in that direction. And so that's kind of my current preoccupation is to take what I just said to you and to talk about it with my colleagues and other academic psychologists, because the way we started with Ernest Becker, remember I said earlier, I wasn't trained in any of these things. I'm an egghead researcher that was doing experiments about biofeedback. And, you know, then we read these Becker books, and I thought they were so interesting that for the first few years, we didn't have any studies. I just would travel around and I'd be like, here's what this Becker guy says. I think this is cool. Yeah. Well, my my present view is I'm like, here's what this Heidegger guy says. I I think these ideas are consistent with what Becker is saying because they are anchored in death anxiety. But I like that direction as an alternative. Uh, to the Kierkegaardian insistence that the only psychologically tenable way to extricate ourselves uh, from um, maladaptive reactions to death anxiety is through faith in the traditional sense. Yeah, I, I always kind of uh, saw Kierkegaard unfairly, like you said, uh, in a comic book sense, uh, of the word faith as a non-traditional sense. I kind of like the idea of leap of faith. Oh, I love that idea. And, and so what I've been babbling about with, you know, Kierkegaard or Heidegger, you know, I, I'm like, yeah, Kierkegaard is a leap of faith in God. Heidegger's a leap of faith in life. And I, I just, yeah, I, 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 I like it. I found the leap of faith really interesting in the, so in the technological space. So of... Um, I've, I've talked to him on this thing with Elon Musk, but I think he's also just in general for our culture, a really important figure. Oh, absolutely. That takes, uh, I mean, he's sometimes a little bit insane on, on uh, <laughs> social media on, and just in life. When, when I met him, it was kind of interesting that, uh, of course, there's a, I mean, he's a, a legit engineer, so he's fun to talk to about the technical things. Yeah. But he also just, just the way the humor and the way he sees life, it just like refuses to be conventional. Yeah, uh, I have, uh, uh -oh. so it's a constant uh, leap into the unknown. And one of the things that he does, uh, and this isn't even this isn't even like fake. A lot of people say because he's a CEO, there's a business owner, so he's trying to make money. No, I think this is this is. I, I looked him in his, in his eyes. I mean, this is real. 
is a lot of the things he believes that are going to be accomplished that a lot of others are saying are impossible, like autonomous vehicles, he truly believes it. To me, that is the leap of faith of I'm almost going like, we're like, the, the entirety of our experience is shrouded in mystery. Yep. We don't know what the hell's gonna happen. What, you don't know what we're actually capable of as human beings. And he just takes the leap. Yep. Um, he fully believes that we can, you know, we can go to Mars, we can colonize Mars. Yep. I mean, how, how crazy is it to just believe and dream and actually be taking steps towards it? Yeah. Um, to colonizing Mars when most people are like, that's the stupidest idea ever. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm in agreement with you on that. Um, you know, two things. You know, one is it reminds me of Ben Franklin, who in his autobiography, you know, has a similarly childish in the yeah. best sense of the word. Um, unbridled imagination for what might become. Yeah. You know, Ben Franklin's like, yeah, I, I, I got electricity, that's cool, but we'll be levitating soon. And you know, I we can't even begin to imagine uh, what we are capable of. And, and of course, people are like, dude, that's crazy. And there's a guy with, it's F.C.S. Schiller, some humanistic guy at the beginning of the 20th century, He's like, you know, um, lots of things that people think about may appear to be absurd to the point of obscene, but the reality is historically, every fantastic innovation has generally been initiated by someone who was condemned <laughs> for being a lunatic. And... It's not that anything is possible, but surely things that we don't try will never manifest as possibilities. Yeah, and that, that's that's uh, that. There's something beautiful to that. That's the uh, embracing the abyss, and, and again, it's like the uh, it's the uh, embracing the fear of death, the 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 the, the reality of death, and then turning. Uh, and to look at all the opportunities before I like, us. Yeah, that's right. Let me ask you, whenever I bring up Ernest Becker's work, which I do, and, and yours quite a bit, I find it surprising how that it's not a lot more popular in a sense that, uh, no, we're not, well, I don't mean just your book. Yeah. Uh, that's well-written, people should read it, should buy it, whatever. Uh uh, I think it has the same kind of qualities that are useful to think about as like Jordan Peterson's work and stuff sure. like that. But I, I just mean like why people uh, are not, don't think of that as a compelling description of um, the core of the human yeah, condition. Yeah. Like I think what you mentioned about Heidegger is, is quite, connects with me quite well. So I ask uh, on this podcast, I often ask people if they're afraid of death. That's like almost every single person. I almost always get criticized for asking world-class people, uh, scientists and technologists and about the fear of death and the meaning of life. And on the fear of death, they often like don't say anything interesting. What I mean by that is they haven't thought deeply about it. Like what yeah. you you kind of brought this up a few times of really letting it sink in. Yeah. They kind of say this thing about what exactly what you said, which is like uh it's something that happens not today, 
Like I'm aware that it's something that happens. Yeah. And I'm not the the thing they usually say is I'm not afraid of death. I just want to live a good life, kind of thing. Yeah. And it, uh, what what I, I'm trying to express is like when I look in their eyes and the kind of the the core of the conversation, it looks like they haven't really become like they haven't really meditated on death. I guess the question is, um, what do I say to people uh, that there's something to really think about here? Like there's some demons, some realities that need to be faced by more people. Well, that's a tough one. Uh, You know, I could tell you what not to do. Uh, (laughs) You know, so when we are young and annoying, um, a lot of famous people, mostly psychologists, because that's who we intersected with, that, you know, we would lay out these ideas and they would be, well, I I don't think about death like that. So these ideas must be wrong. And we would say, well, you don't think about death because you're lucky enough to be comfortably ensconced in a cultural worldview from which you derive self-esteem and that has it's spared you the existential excruciations that would otherwise arise. But that's like Freud. You know, you're repressing, so you either agree with me, in which case I'm right, or you disagree with me, in which case you're repressing and yeah. I'm right. Well, so that, that's the, uh, the the Nietzsche thing. I, I, what I've felt when I've, there have been moment in my life, moments in my life when I really thought about death. I mean, there's not too many, like really really thought about it and feel the thing when you felt at eight, maybe I'm dramatizing or romanticizing it, but uh, I feel like it's, uh, uh, the conservatives call it popularly like, or the, the movie Matrix call it the red pill yeah. moment. Uh, I feel like it's a dangerous thought because um, I feel like I'm taking a step out of a society. Like there's a nice narrative that we've all constructed. You are. And I'm taking a step out. And uh, it feels, there's this feeling like you're basically drowning. I mean, it's it's not a good feeling. It is not. But this gets back to the Heidegger Kierkegaard school of anxiety. You are stepping out. Yeah. And and you are momentarily shrugging off. again, the culturally constructed psychological accoutrements that allow you to stand up in the morning. And so, I I mean, in that sense, it feels like, I mean, uh, what do you, uh, how do you have that conversation? Because I guess I'm I'm dancing around a, a set of questions, which is like, I guess I'm disappointed that people don't, are not uh, as willing to step outside. Like uh, even just, uh, even any kind of thought experiment. Yeah. Let's, let's forget uh, denial of death. Like um, uh, there's, there's now a community of people. Let's t- take an easy one that I think is scientifically ridiculous, which is there's a community of people that believe that uh, the earth is flat. Yeah. Uh, or actually even, even better, <laughs> that space is fake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like what I find surprising is that a lot of people I talk to are not willing to uh, be like, imagine if it is like, imagine the earth is flat. Like think about it. Right. Like a lot of people just like, no, the earth is round. 
<laughs> they they're like uh like scientists yeah. too they're like yeah it's uh, well actually wait have you actually like thought about it like imagine like yes, a yes. thought experiment that, that like basically step outside the little narrative that we are comfortable with now that one in particular is <laughs> has a really strong uh, uh evidence uh and scientific validation so on it's a pretty simple thing to show that it at least is not flat uh but just the willingness to take a step outside of the stories that bring us comfort has uh, been disappointing that people are not willing to do that yeah and i think uh the philosophy that you've constructed and that ernest beck has constructed and you've tested uh, i think is really compelling and the fact that people aren't often willing to take that step yeah it's disappointing well yes but perhaps understandable. I mean, one of the, this is an anecdote, of course, but when we were trying to get a publisher for our book, um, I had a, we had a meeting with um, a publisher who uh, published some Malcolm Gladwell books. Yeah, and um, she said, "I'm very interested in your book, but can you write it without mentioning death? Because people don't like death." And we're like, no, it's really kind of central. Um, and I think that's part of it. I, I think, again, if these ideas have merit, and I actually like the way that you put it, Lex, it's that to step away is to momentarily expose yourself to all of the anxiety yeah, I, that our identity and our beliefs typically enable us to manage. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, I, I had this experience um, in college with my best friend uh, who got really high. Uh, uh, <laughs> and he forgot it was uh, in the winter. It was really freezing. It was memorable to me. I think it's an analogy. It's very useful. Uh, so he went to get some pizza. <laughs> And of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and uh, he so I and he left me outside and said, I'll be back in five minutes. <laughs> and he forgot that he left me outside. And I remember it was uh, I was in like shorts, yeah, it was freezing winter. Wow, and I remember standing outside, it's a dorm, and I'm looking from the outside in, it's a, a light and it's warm, and I'm just standing there frozen, I think for an hour or more. and. I, that's how I think about it. Like, I just, I don't give a damn about the stupid winter or anything. I just want to, I like, it's like a, I'm drawn to be back to the warm. Yes. To the, and that's how I feel about thinking about like death. It's like, yeah. at a certain point, it's like, it's too much. It's like that cold. I like I want to be back into the warm. And I, I, getting back to Heidegger for a moment, I, I like the, yeah, he uses a lot the idea of feeling at home, uh, uh, not as like in your house, but just feeling like you're comfortably situated. Maybe we can talk about, like I had a conversation about this with my dad a little bit. Um, how does um, religion relate to this? I see it as the uh, the disease and the cure. Um, in, the, in a sense, um, a few things, um, one is that um, 
I think a case could be made that humans are innately religious. Uh, so now we're going to get into territory where there's going to be a lot of disputes. Um, and by uh, what do you mean by religious? The uh, religion is an evolutionary adaptation. And um, religion is like a belief in something outside of yourself kind of thing? Not necessarily. So here we got to be a little bit more um, careful. Um, and again, I'm not a scholar. I, how about I'm a well-intentioned dilettante in this in, in this regard <laughs> yeah because what what i have read is that religion um evolved very early on long before our ancestors were conscious and the issue of death arose um and that um the word religion evidently is from a Latin word, regatear, we can look it up, but, and it means to bind. And Emile Durkheim, the dead French sociologist, he said, you know, originally religion is, uh, Dars Lessing, who's a, a dead novelist, she calls it the substance of we feeling, that it's literally, that it erose because we're uber social creatures, who from time to time took comfort in just being in physical proximity with our uh, fellow humans. And that there is this kind of sense of transcendent exuberance, just back to the unshakable joy that Heidegger alludes to. And that the original function of religion uh, was to foster social cohesion and coordination. And that it was only subsequently, some claim, that a burgeoning level of consciousness made it such that religious belief systems that included the hope of some kind of immortality were just naturally selected thereafter. So there are some people, so uh, it's uh, David Sloan Wilson mm -hmm. wrote a book called Darwin's Cathedral, and he said religion has nothing to do with death. It's a, It evolved to make groups viable. He's actually a group selection guy. What's group selection? Uh, the idea that um, it's the group that is selected for rather than the individual. The, the individual. Yeah, so gotcha. people have vigorous disagreements about that. But I guess our point would be we see religion as being inextricably, inextricably connected ultimately to assuaging concerns about death. Well, I guess another question to ask around this, uh, like what, what does the world look like without religion? Uh, will we, if, if it's uh, inextricably, inextricably connected uh, to our fears of death, do you think it always returns in some kind of shape? Maybe it's not called religion, but whatever, it just keeps returning? Yeah, who knows? So that's a, that's a great question, Lex. So there's a woman named Karen Armstrong. She was a nun turned historian. And she's, I can't remember the name of the book. But no matter, uh, she we could look that up. But if you want, I can look it up. But I can also, I'll just yeah, add, add it. In okay, post. yeah. Her point, it's, it has God in the title, of course. But you know, she's like, look, 
all religions are generally fairly right-minded in that they advocate the golden rule. And all religions at their best do seem to foster pro-social behavior towards the in-group, and that confers both psychological as well as physical benefits. That's the good news. And the bad news is historically all religions are subject to being hijacked by a lunatic fringe who declares that, you know, they're the ones in sole possession of the liturgical practices or whatever they call them. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that turn, you know, religion at its best into your crusades and holocausts. Yeah. My view not that it should matter for much, but <laughs> I, I, I'm, I grew up just skeptical of religion because I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, well, if we didn't have these beliefs, we wouldn't be killing each other right. because of them. And I'd be like to my parents, well, you're telling me that all people should be judged on the merits of their character but don't come home if you don't marry a Jewish woman. Right. Which is implying that if you're not Jewish, you're an inferior form of life. Yeah, that's what tribes always do. Yeah. And there's the tribal thing. Yeah. And so there's a guy named Amin Malouf, a Lebanese guy who writes in French, who in the 1990s, I think, wrote a book called um, In the Name of Identity, Violence and the Need to Belong. And that was his point is, uh, unless we can overcome this tribal mentality, this will not end well. But but you said earlier something, Lex, that I think is profound and profoundly important. And that is, you did not recoil in horror when I mentioned Kierkegaard's use of the term faith. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm a big fan of faith, and I'm not sure what that implies. I I, I have, and by the way, this is just a, a, a peripheral comment, but I find less resistance to Becker's ideas in our work when I'm in like Jesuit schools. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the Americans that, you know, the secular humanists who are most disinclined to accept these ideas. It's an important side comment because uh, I think it's mostly because they don't think philosophically. That's, I mean, I speak with a lot of scientists and um, I think that's my main uh, criticism is, is you don't, I mean, that's the problem with science. Exactly. Is it's so comforting to focus in on the details that you can escape thinking about the mystery of it all, the big picture things, the philosophical, like the fact that you don't actually know shit at all, like that, that, uh, that, that, yeah. So the, the, in terms of Jesuit, like that's, yeah. that's the beauty of uh, the experience of faith and so on is like, uh, how wherever that journey takes you is you you actually explore the biggest questions of our world. Yeah, yeah. So That's, I don't see religion going away because I don't see humans as capable of surviving without faith and hope. 
And everyone from the Pope to Elon Musk will acknowledge that it is a, a world that is unfathomably mysterious. And like it or not, in the absence of beliefs, here I'm, uh, I'm Charles Peirce, the pragmatic philosopher. He just said beliefs are the basis of action. If you don't have any beliefs, you're paralyzed with indecision. Whether we're aware of it or not, whether we like it or not, in order to stand up in the morning, you have to subscribe to beliefs that can never be unequivocally proven, right or wrong. Well, then why do you maintain them well ultimately it's because of some form of faith but also also faith shouldn't be a dogmatic thing that uh you should always be leaping <laughs> yes I, I guess uh the problem with science or with religion is uh it, you could sort of uh nice all of a sudden take a step into a place where you're super confident that you know the absolute truth of things. There you go. And yeah. again, back to Socrates, Plato, back in the cave. Uh, you know, the, at Skidmore, where I work, uh, that's what I have the students read in their first week. You know, and Plato's like, oh, look at all those poor bastards. You know, they're in the cave, but they don't know it. You know, and then they are freed from their chains. And they have to be dragged out of the cave, by the way, which is another interesting point. They don't run out. Mm -hmm. uh, but that gets back to why people don't like to be divested of their comfortable illusions. But anyway, they get dragged out of the cave into the sunlight, which he claims is a representation of truth and beauty. And I say to the students, well, what's wrong with that? And they're like, nothing. That's like awesome. And then I'm like, yo, dudes, you added the cave, but how do you know that you're not in another cave? The illumination may be better, right. but the minute you think you're at the end of the proverbial intellectual slash epistemological trail, then you have already succumbed yeah. to either laziness or dogmatism or both. That's really well put. Ah, that's both terrifying and exciting that, that we're always, it's, uh, there's always a bigger cave. A little bit of an out there question, but I think some of the interesting qualities of the human mind is the ideas of intelligence and consciousness. So what do you make of consciousness? So do you think death creates consciousness? Like the fear of death, the terror of death creates consciousness? And uh, consciousness in turn magnifies the terror of death. I do. Um, I, I like what is consciousness to you? Like, oh, don't ask me that. So now, uh, because that, <laughs> if I could answer that, you know, I'd be chugging rum out of a coconut with my Nobel Prize. That, um, you know, it's literally, you know, Steven Pinker, I do agree with his claim, and I think how the mind works, that it is the key question for the psychological sciences broadly defined in the 21st century. What is consciousness? Yeah, what is consciousness? Uh, and I don't think it's an epiphenomenological afterthought. So a lot of people, I think Dan Wegner at Harvard, uh, a lot of folks consider it just the 
ass end of a process that by the time we are aware of what it is, it, it's just basically an integrated rendering of something that's already happened. You know, evidently the there's a half second delay between when right. something happens, you know, those studies yeah. and our awareness of it. Uh, I'm, um, yeah, and then that's where like ideas of free will will step in. Yeah. So you can explain away a lot of stuff. And I think those are all important yeah. and interesting questions. Uh, I'm of the persuasion, I mean, even, not even, but, but Dawkins in the selfish gene um, is very thoughtful. Actually, in a lot of, it's actually more in notes than in the text of the book, but he's just like, it's hard for me to imagine that consciousness doesn't have some sort of important and highly adaptive function. And what Dawkins says is he thought about it in terms of just the, that we could do mental simulations, that uh, one possibly extraordinary product of consciousness is to rather than uh, find out often um, by adverse consequences through trying something would be to run mental simulations. And so one possibility is that consciousness is highly adaptive. Another possibility is uh, Nicholas Humphrey, a British dude who wrote a book about, I think it's called Regaining Consciousness. And he hypothesized, I think this is 1980s, maybe even earlier, that consciousness arose as a way to better predict the behavior of others in social settings, that by knowing how I feel makes me better able to know how you may be feeling. This is like the rudiments of a theory of mind. And that it really may not have had anything to do with intelligence so much as social intelligence. And so, so in that sense, consciousness is a social construct like that, it's, yes. it's, it's just a useful thing for interacting with other humans yeah and, I, I don't know so but uh, uh, there seems to be something um about realizing your own mortality that's somehow intricately connected to the idea of consciousness well i think so also so this is where um and and nietzsche um he said a solitary creature would not need consciousness uh, well, what do you think? Well, I don't know what I think about that. But what I do, and then he goes on to say that consciousness is the most calamitous stupidity by which we shall someday perish. And, and wow, I was like, dude, I was already. <laughs> <laughs> relax. relax. <laughs> well, but so, what uh, if you, I mean, say you were on an island alone and you saw a reflection of yourself in, in, in the water, uh, like, if you were alone your whole life? Yeah, great question. The, his view, Nietzsche's view would be that it, your thoughts of yourself would never come to mind. I don't know how I feel about that, though. In a sense, this, this sounds weird, but I, I, in a sense, I feel like my mental conversation has always been with death. It's almost like another, you know, um, another notion, like... Um, you know, the, the, there's these visualizations of yeah. a, of a death in a cloak. Like I always felt like I am a living thing, 
And then there's an other thing that is the end of me. <laughs> and I'm having like a conversation with that. So in the sense, that's uh, that's the way I construct my, the fact that I am a thing is because there's somebody else that tells me, well, you won't be a thing uh, eventually. Wow. So it feels like a conversation uh, perhaps, but that's, uh, that might be kind of this uh, mental simulation kind of idea that you're 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 kind of it's not really a co it's a conversation with yourself essentially. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, but I I, I tend to be uh, in agreement with you when we're talking about economics more so that uh, that we're deeply social beings, like everything. The way it just feels like we're humans. I'm I'm with uh, Harari with the sapiens. Yeah. We're kind of we seem to construct ideas on top of each other, and, and that's a fundamentally a social process. I, absolutely, I think that's a fine book. It, it, it overlaps considerably with our take on these matters, and the fact that we get to these points. Drawing on different sources, I think, makes me more confident that it's so. It's so fascinating. Just, just like reading your book. I'm sorry, uh, on a small tangent, uh, that *Sapiens* is like one of the most popular books in the world. Like, yeah. <laughs> and just reading your book is like, well, this sounds. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know what makes a popular book. Yeah. Is, uh, well, if you want me to be petty and stupid, I will tell you that from time to time, um, we also wander. Um, why our book, you know, like all books, people um, can take issue with it, but we thought it would be a bigger hit that it would be more widely well, read. And, the, uh, it's funny because I, I've, um, I don't know if I have good examples because I forgot already, but I'm often saddened by like Franz Kafka. I think he wasn't known in his life. Yeah. But I always wonder like these great, yeah, like some of the greatest books ever written are completely unknown during the author's yep. lifetime. And it's like, man, I, for some reason that it's again, it's that identity thing. Yeah. I think. Man, that sucks. Well, I'm comforted by that. So Van Gogh <laughs> sold one painting in his life, and evidently uh, Thoreau sold like 75 copies of Walden. Uh, Nietzsche's books did not sell well. And, and how did Ernest Becker sell? He he is the uh, his books are published by the Free Press and have sold more than any other books. Um, that. Uh they have published so so what does that mean it's a lot <laughs> i i don't know if it's like jordan peterson millions but it's hundreds of thousands was he respected uh so i i just don't see him i okay yeah uh i don't see him brought up as a like in the top 10 philosophers of no uh, not at all of, uh, so how far away is he is he in the top 100 for people i don't think so like he doesn't, he's not brought yeah. up that often. Because again, like he, your work is brought up more often. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, term, like, because I think it gotten, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's one of the great philosophers of the 20th century. So, what so we weird. say, Lex, is that our goal, certainly when we first started, and now just as much actually, but 
what I say at all my talks is, look, if these ideas have interest you enough to go read Ernest Becker, then this has been good. I consider him to be one of the most important voices of the 20th century who does not get the attention that he deserves. All right. Similarly, our work, I believe, to be important because point by point, we provide empirical corroboration for all of the claims. If, you know, when um, that, so that's literally the students that read the denial of death and then escape from evil, they're like, yeah, wow, every chapter of the book, you have studies. And I'm like, yeah, because for 40 years, if a Skidmore student said, oh, that's got to be bullshit, I'm like, well, let's do a study. Let's do a study. And my, my own dreams are in creating uh, robots and uh, artificial intelligence systems that a human can love. And I think there's something about uh, mortality and fear of mortality that is essential for implementing in our AI systems. Yeah. And so well, maybe can you comment on that? Like, well, uh, on, on uh, so this is, a, this is a different perspective on, on, on your work, sure. which is like, how do we engineer a human? Yeah, so, no, this is awesome, Lex. I'm delighted that you said that. First of all, and I may mention this to you, and I don't, I can't remember, because I am seeing out. When you first contacted me, yeah. I had just been told I have to learn more about your work because I'm working with some very talented people in New York and they're they're writing a screenplay uh, for a movie about an artificial intelligence. It's a female AI mm -hmm. set in like 30 years in the future. And basically, the little twist, this is how I had to read Heidegger. So these people call me, and they're like, we're making a movie. It's based on Becker and your work, and Heidegger, and this other philosopher, Levinas, and then another philosopher, Sylvia Benzo, who's an Italian philosopher. Mm -hmm. And the long short story is the movie is about supposedly the most advanced artificial intelligence entity, an embodied one, mm -hmm. uh, and who- Human form? Human form, yeah. who finds out, who is having, uh, having essentially existential anxieties. And the I think the project is called A Dinner With Her or something, and it doesn't really matter, but the punchline is that she finds out that her creator has made her mortal. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what happens phenomenologically and behaviorally to... An, an artificial intelligence who now knows that it's mortal. And it's actually the same question that you're posing. Yeah. And that is, is that necessary in order for an AI to approximate humanity? Yeah, I, th I think, yeah. So the intuition, again, it's, uh, it's unknown, but uh, I think it's absolutely... 
I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, a lot of people, this, the same kind of shallow thinking that people have about our own end of life, our own death, is the same way people think of, I think about artificial intelligence. It's like, well, okay, so yeah, you, so within the system, there's a there's a terminal position where like there's there's a there's a point at which it ends. You just the program ends. Uh, there's a goal state. There's a you reached an end point. But the thing is, uh, making that end a thing that's also within the program, exactly. like like the making the thing like yeah. and then it's also the mystery of it so yeah. the thing is <laughs> we don't know what the hell this death thing is i mean it's not like um it's not like we i mean the program doesn't give us information about the meaning of it all exactly and the, the, that's where the terror is I, and and i it feels like i mean uh in the language that you you would think about is um is the terror of this death or like anticipation of it or thinking about it is the creative force that builds everything. Right. And that feels like, a, uh, you know, that feels really important to implement. Again, it's very difficult to know how to do technically currently, but it's important to think about. What I find is, you mentioned like screenplays and so on, is sci-fi folks and uh, philosophers are the, the only ones thinking about it currently. And that's it, what... These folks have convinced me. Yeah, and engineers aren't, which is uh, I get. Yeah, mo most of the most most of the things I talk about, I get kind of um, uh, people roll their eyes from the engineer well, perspective. Not these folks. <laughs> not, they're like, because I, again, I saw your name, and they're like, "Wait a minute, I've just seen that." They're like, "Here's someone you should check out." Yeah. So yeah, this was a, a delightful confluence. Yeah, I was a, I was a huge fan of um, your work and uh, Ernest Becker, and it's, um, it's funny that not enough people are uh, talking about it. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that. I think that there's a possibility to create real, deep, meaningful connections between AI systems and humans. Absolutely. And uh, I think some of these things of fear mortality are essential. Are yeah. essential for the element of human experience. I don't, I don't think it might be essential to create general intelligence, like very intelligent machines, but to create a machine that connects to a human in some yeah. deep way. Would, what's your view? Not to make me the interviewer, but what's your view about um, machine ethics? Can you imagine an ethical AI without some semblance? of yeah so, finitude let's say well i i think ethics is a it's a you know there's a there's a trolley problem that's often used yeah. in the work that i've done at Joshua MIT. Green. Yeah, yeah with uh with autonomous vehicles in particular oh yeah yeah uh that people i think they offload they ask like how would a machine deal with an ethical situation that they themselves humans don't know how to deal exactly with. and so i don't know if a machine is able to uh do a better job on ethical on difficult ethical questions but i certainly think to behave properly and effectively in this world it needs to be uh, have a fear of mortality and like be able to even 
dance, because I don't think you can solve ethical problems, but you have to, uh, I, I think like ethics is like a dance floor and you have to just, you have to uh, dance properly with the rest of the humans. Like if people are nice. dancing tango, you have to dance in the same kind of way. And for that, you have to have a fear of mortality. Like I think of uh, more practically speaking, like I said autonomous vehicles, like the way you interact with pedestrians fundamentally has to have a sense of mortality. So uh, when pedestrians cross the road, now I've watched well, certainly 100 plus hours of pedestrian videos, there's a kind of social uh, contract where you walk in front of a car and you're putting your life in the hands of another human yes, being. Yes, that's right. And, and if, like death is, is uh is in the car like in the game that's being played death is right there uh it's part of the calculus it's not but it's not like a simple calculus it's not a simple equation it's uh it's an est it's a i mean i don't know what it is but it's it's in the it's in there and uh it has to be part of the optimization problem like it's not as simple as so from the computer vision from the artificial intelligence perspective it's detecting there's a human estimating right, uh, right. Uh, estimating the trajectory, like treating everything like it's a uh, billiard balls, uh, as opposed to like being able to construct an effective model, the world model of the what the person's thinking, what they're going to do, what are the different possibilities of how the scene might evolve, I think requires having some sense of, yeah, fear of, fear of mortality, of mortality. I don't see the the thing is, I think it's really important to think about. I, I can be honest enough to say that it's I haven't been able to figure out how to engineer any of these things. Right. Uh, but I do think it's really really important. Like I have uh, so I have a bunch of Roombas here. I can show it to you after. Uh, that I've Roombas is a robot that yeah. does um, vacuums the floor, and I've had them. Um, make different sounds like i had them scream in pain <laughs> and it it uh it uh you immediately anthropomorphize absolutely and it creates a i don't know knowing that they can feel pain see i'm i'm speaking like knowing uh that i immediately imagine that they can feel pain and it imme immediately draws me closer to them yes at the human experience and that there's there's something in that that should be engineered in in our in our systems. It feels like, yeah. I I believe personally. I don't know what you think, but uh, I believe it's possible for a robot and a human to fall in love. For example, in the in the future. Oh, uh, I think it's yeah, it's already there. <laughs> no, well, I, there's uh, yeah. a certain kind of deep connection with technology. Yeah, but I mean a real like you would choose to marry. Um, I mean again, it sounds. Uh, uh, I'll find a book title and I'll send it to you. And it's a serious consideration of people who started out with these sex dolls, but it turned into a relationship of enduring significance that the woman who wrote the book is not willing to dismiss as a perversion. Yeah, that's what, uh, you know, people kind of joke about sex robots, which is funny. Uh, like it's a it's a funny. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about robots that's just kind of fun to talk about that is is not necessarily connected to reality. 
uh, people joke about sex robots, but if you actually look how sex robots, which are pretty rare these days, yeah. are used, they're not used by people who want sex. Precisely. They're, they're actually- uh, They're companions. They're compa they become companions. Yeah. <laughs> they, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And they're just, we're, we're not even talking about any kind of intelligence. We're talking about just, I mean, human beings seek companionships. We're deeply lonely. I mean, that was the other sense I have that I don't know if I can articulate clearly. You can probably do a better job, but I have a sense that there's a deep loneliness within all of us. Absolutely. In the face of death, it feels like we're yep. alone. So, you know, the what drew me to the existential take on things, Lex, was the, uh, uh, who is it, Rollo May and Erwin Yalom, right, about existentialism. And they're like, look, it, it, what there's different flavors of existentialism. But they all have in common, what is it, four universal concerns. The overriding one is about death. And that next is choice and responsibility. The next one is existential isolation. And they're like, that's one of the things about consciousness. That, and the last one is meaninglessness. But the existential isolation point is, you know, we are, by virtue of consciousness, able to apprehend that unless you're a Siamese twin, you are fundamentally alone. And because it is claimed, it's Eric Fromm uh, in a book called Escape from Freedom, he's like, look, you you're smart enough to know that the most direct way that we typically communicate with our fellow human beings is through language. But you also know that language is a pale shadow of the totality of our interior phenomenological existence. Therefore, there's always going to be times in our lives where even under the best of circumstances, you could be trying desperately to convey your thoughts and feelings and somebody listening could be like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. And you're like, you have no fucking idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. So you can be desperately lonely in a house where you live with 10 people in the middle of Tokyo where there's millions yeah, yeah, it's the great Gatsby. Yeah, it could be alone. Precisely, a party. Yeah, exactly. Maybe this is a small tangent, but sure. let, let me ask you um, on the topic of academia. You're kind of uh, I mean, we talked about Jordan Peterson. There's a lot of sort of renegade type of thinkers, uh, certainly in psychology, but it applies in all disciplines. Of what are your thoughts about academia being a place? to uh, harbor people like yourself. That, you know, people who think mm -hmm. deeply about things, who are not constrained by sort of the, who, who I, mean, I, don't, I don't think you're quite controversial. No, not uh, really. I, uh, but you are a person who thinks deeply about things. And it feels like uh, academia can sometimes stifle that. I think so. So uh, my concern right now, Lex, for young scholars, is that um, 
the restrictions and expectations are such that it's highly unlikely that anybody will do anything <laughs> of um, great value or innovation except for, and this is not a bad thing, but stepwise improvement of existing paradigms. So the, you know, in simple English, you know, I went to Princeton for a job interview 40 years ago and they're like, what are you going to do if we give you a job? And I'm like, I don't know. I want to think about it and read. And, um, and I, I saw that that interview was over, the window of opportunity shut in my face. And they actually called my mentors and they're like, what are you doing? Tell this guy to buy some pants. I had hair down to my waist also. He's like, this guy looks like Charles Manson and Jesus. But but, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, the the expectation is that you come to a post, you you start publishing so that you can get grants that's certainly true, but there's also kind of a behavioral thing. You said like long hair. There's a, there's a certain style of the way you're supposed to behave. For example, like I'm wearing a suit. It, it sounds it sounds weird, but I feel comfortable in this. I, you know, I wore it like when I was teaching at MIT. I, I wore it. Sure. I wore it to meetings and so on. The different uh, sometimes a blue and red tie, but. Th- like that was an outsider thing to do at MIT. So like there was a strong yeah. pressure to not wear a suit. No, that's right. It's And there's a pressure to behave, to have a hair thing. No, that's like right. The way you wear your hair, the way you, uh, this isn't like a liberal or a left no, no, or no, anything. No. It's just a pre- in tribes. That's right. In academia to me or a place, any place that dreams of having like renegade free thinkers, like really deep thinkers, should in fact like glorify the outsider, right? Yeah. Should welcome just should welcome uh you know uh people that don't fit in. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> look, that I, sounds weird, but I don't I could just imagine an interview with at Princeton, you know, like I imagine why aren't people why aren't you at uh, Harvard, for example, or at M- or MIT? Um Yeah. Well so that look, I would love to uh you know, I I haven't lectured at MIT, but I've lectured at Harvard. I've I, I've gotten to lecture at almost every place that wouldn't consider me for a job. Yeah, and I um, well, a few things. I'm lucky because I, you know, I go to Princeton. I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. And then two days later, I go to Skidmore, and I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. And they offer me a job later that day which I declined for months because of the extraordinary pressure of my mentors who right-mindedly felt that I wouldn't get much done there. And, and But what they told me at Skidmore was, take your time, you know, show up for your classes and don't molest barnyard animals and you'll probably get tenure. And I'm yeah. like, I'll show up for my classes. We'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, that was the negotiation. Yeah, I yeah. negotiated. I, I well, drove a yeah. hard bargain. But- <laughs> <laughs> but uh, honestly, Lex, that's, I feel uh, I'm very committed to Skidmore because I I was given tenure when our first terror management paper wasn't published. It took eight years to publish. It was rejected at every journal. 
And I submitted it as like a purple ditto sheet thing. I'm like, here's what I've been doing. Here's the reviews. Here's why I think this is still a pretty good idea. And I don't know that this would happen even at Skidmore anymore. But I, yeah. I was very lucky to be given the latitude and to be encouraged. I I took classes at Skidmore. That's how I learned all this stuff. I, I graduated. I got a PhD unscathed by knowledge. We were great statisticians and methodologists, but we didn't have any substance. You know, I, I and I don't mean this cynically, but we were trained in a method in search of a question. So I appreciate having five years at Skidmore basically to read books. And I also appreciate that I look like this 40 years ago. And my view is that this is how I comported myself. Other people, my, the guy I learned the most from at Skidmore is now dead, a history professor, Tad Kuroda, he wore a bow tie. And there's another guy, Darnell Rucker, who taught me about philosophy. And he was very proper, and he had like his jacket with like the leather yeah. patches. <laughs> yeah. But these guys weren't pompous at all. They were, this is the way I am. And I always felt that that's important, that somebody who looks at you and says, oh, what a stiff, he's probably an MBA. Yeah. Well, they're wrong. Yeah. And someone who looks at me, when I first got to Skidmore, other professors would ask when I'd be coming to their office to empty the garbage. They just assumed, you know, I was in my 20s, they assumed I was housekeeping. I always felt that was important that the students learn not to judge an idea by the appearance of the person who purveys it. And yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, I, I guess this is such a high concern now because I personally still have faith that academia is where the great geniuses will come from. I uh, do too. I'm, and great I'm, ideas. I love hearing you say that. I, I still, and it's one of the reasons why I'm really apprehensive about the future of education right now in the context of the pandemic. I, um, oh, yeah. Is that a lot of folks, and these, a lot of these are Google type people who I don't, you know, they're geniuses also, but I don't like this idea that all learning can be virtual and that right. much could happen. I'm big on embodied environments with actual humans yeah, interacting. A, I mean, there's there's so much to the university education, but I think the key part that I uh, is the the mentorship that occurs somehow in at the human level like i've gotten a lot of flack like this conversation we're in in person now and i've uh even with edward snowden who done all interviews remote i'm a stickler to in person it has to be in person like and a lot of people just don't get it they're like well why can't this is so much easier like why go through the pain like i've traveled i'm i'm traveling in the next month to paris for a single stupid conversation nobody cares about just to be in person well it's important to me i i honestly i was like this 
there, and thank you for coming down today. Oh, it's my pleasure. But I, but this again, it's very self serving. I've enjoyed this. I knew I was going to, but it's not about our enjoyment per se. Um, again, at the risk of sounding cavalier, there are a host of factors beyond verbal. Yeah, that I don't believe can be adequately captured. I don't care how much the acuity is decent on a Zoom conversation. I, yeah. I feel, uh, again, I, uh, I felt within five minutes that this was going to be, for me, easy in the sense that I could speak freely. I, yeah. I just don't see that happening so easily from a distance. Yeah, I, I, I tend to, well... I'm hopeful, uh, I agree with you on the current technology, but I am hopeful, unlike some others, on the technology eventually being able to create that kind of experience. Oh, I we're, think it's- We're quite far away from that, but yeah. it might be able to, my hope is, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I was at Microsoft in Seattle, and I can't remember why. And <laughs> no, I, I can't, I, 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 that's how, I'm in my early Mr. Magoo phase, and- and somebody there was showing us like a virtual wall where the entire wall, you know, when you're talking to somebody, so it's life size and yeah. they were beginning the get the appearance of motion and stuff. It looked pretty. Yeah. With virtual reality too. I don't know if you've ever been inside a virtual world. Yeah. Uh, it's to me, it's uh, I can just, I, I can see the future. It's uh it's, it's quite real. Yeah. In terms of like a terror of death, um, I'm afraid of heights. Me too. <laughs> and, and there's, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried, uh, you should if you haven't, there's a virtual reality experience where you can walk a plank. Yeah. And you can look down and, uh, man, I was on the ground like <laughs> I was like, I was afraid, I was deeply afraid. I was, is it was, it was, uh, it was as real as, uh, yep. as anything else could be. And, I mean, these are very early days of that technology, relatively speaking. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Same with like crossing the street. We did these experiments crossing the street in front of a car. And, uh, you know, it's being run over by a car. Uh, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's just that, uh, yeah. So the, there is a rich experience to be created there. We're not there yet, but... Uh, uh, I, yeah, and I've seen a lot of people try, like you said, the Google folks, uh, uh, Silicon Valley folks try to create a virtual online education. I don't know. Uh, I think they've raised really important questions Absolutely. about like what makes uh, uh, the education experience fulfilling, what makes it effective. Yeah, these and, are important questions. And I th think what they highlight is we have no clue. <laughs> like uh, there's... Um, Thomas Sowell uh, wrote a book about, a uh, re recent book on um, charter schools. Yeah, I would like to talk to him. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, we will disagree about a lot, but respectfully. <laughs> yeah, such a powerful mind. Yeah. Uh, but he, I, I need to read, I, I've only heard him talk about the book, uh, but he argues quite seemingly effectively that, uh, that, um, that the public education system is broken, that we blame 
he basically says that we kind of blame uh, like the conditions or the the environment, but uh, the upbringing of people, like parenting, blah blah blah, like the uh, the set of opportunities. But okay, putting that aside, it seems like charter schools, no matter who it is that attends them, does much better than in in public schools. And he puts a bunch of data behind it, and in his usual way. As you know, just is very eloquent in arguing his points. Yeah. So that to me just highlights, man, we don't, education is like one of the most important, The it's probably the most important thing yeah. in our civilization and we're doing a shitty job of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, in academia, in, yeah. uh, uh, in university education and, you know, younger education, yep. the whole thing. The whole thing. And yet um, we value... Um, just about anyone or anything more than educators. Uh, you know, part Teachers. of it is just the relatively low regard that Americans have for teachers. For teachers, uh, also similarly, like um, just people, people of service. I think great teachers uh, are the greatest. Thing in our society and i would say now on a controversial note like black lives matter uh, uh you know great police officers is the greatest thing in our society also like all people that do service yep. that, we undervalue cops severe like this whole defund the police is missing the point <laughs> and it's a stupid word uh, yeah. i'm i'm with you on that lex yeah. our um neighbors to one side of our house are three generations of police. Our neighbors across the street are police. They know my, uh, you know, political predilections. <laughs> and we've gotten along fine for 30 years. And I go out and tell them every day, you know, when you go in today, uh, you tell the people on the force that, uh, I appreciate what they're doing. I, I think it's really important to not tribalize those concerns. I mean, we mentioned so many brilliant books and philosophers, but it would be nice to sort of in a focused way try to see if we can get some recommendations from you. So w w what three books technical or fiction or philosophical had a oh man big <laughs> no, <laughs> this that's is the worst awesome. question well, had no, a big you impact in uh, your life uh, and you would recommend I spent four hours driving here uh, perseverating about uh, that i didn't i everything else you sent me that's fine yeah. and i actually had, i skimmed it and i'm like i don't want to look at it because yeah. i want i want us to talk yeah the ones in blue i'm like yeah. all right and you know I've already said that I've found Becker's work and I put the denial of death out there. Um, is that his best? Sorry, I don't, on a small tangent. Yeah, is there other books that, of his? That, yeah, see, if I could have this count as one, the, the, the birth and death of meaning, the denial of death and escape from evil are three books of Ernest Becker's that I believe to all be profound. In a... In a little sort of yeah. brief dance around topics, 
uh, I've only read Denial of Death. Like, how do those books connect in your? Yeah, nice. So the 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 birth and death of meaning is where Becker situates his thinking in, in more of an evolutionary foundation. So I like gotcha. that for that reason. Escape from Evil is where he applies the ideas in the denial of death more directly uh, to economic matters and to inequality, and also to our inability to peacefully coexist with other folks who don't share our beliefs. So I would put Ernest Becker out there as one. Um, I also like novels a lot. And here I was like, God damn it, no matter what <laughs> I say, I'm going to be like, yes, but. Uh, but the existentialist, uh, you like all those folks? Camus, you like the, that literary existentialist? I, I do, but I, I mean, you know, I, I've i read all those books. Uh, I, I will tell you the last line of the plague, we learn in times of pestilence that there's more to admire in men than to despise. And I love that. Yeah. Um, plagues. Such a, I don't know. I, I find the plague is a brilliant me book. Me too. Before, before uh, the plague has come to us in 2020, uh, it was just a, such yeah, a good book. So, a good book about love. About, uh, but I'll toss a, a one that may be less known to folks. I, I'm enamored with a novel by a woman named Carson McCullers, written in 1953, called Clock Without Hands. And I find it a brilliant literary depiction of many of the ideas that we have spoken about fiction fiction yeah what's uh what kind of ideas are we talking about uh it it, it all of the existential ideas that we have encountered today but in the context of a story of someone who finds out that he is terminally ill uh, it's set in the south in the um heyday of like segregation so there's a lot of social issues a lot of existential issues but it's basically a, novel, a fictional account of someone who finds out that they're terminally ill and who reacts originally as um you might expect anyone uh becomes more um hostile to people who are different like petty and stupid denies that anything's happening but uh, as the book goes on and he comes more to terms um with his own mortality um it ends lovingly and uh, uh, back to your idea about you know love being incredibly potent that's the the nice thing as you mentioned uh, before with with heidegger I really like that idea, and I've seen that in people who are terminally ill, is they bring, you know, the idea of death becomes uh, current. Yes. It becomes like a thing, you know, I could die. I really like that idea. I I can die not just tomorrow, but like now. 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 Yeah. It, that's a really useful I don't even know. I think I've been too afraid to even think about that. Like I have, like, like, sit here and think. Like in five minutes, exactly. it's over. Yeah, <laughs> this is it. This in is five it. minutes, it's over. Yeah. So I, I, that would be my most recent addition. As I, I really am struck by Heidegger, Heidegger. 
Um, so would you recommend? That well, be? okay. Well, if you have a few years, <laughs> I remember I tuned out being in time. I was like, I try to read it. Uh, I was like, that's it. I'm it's a, look. It took me forty years to read Ulysses. I yeah. could not get past the first five pages, and it took me forty years to read Being in Time. It's a slog. Yeah, and well, I, I took a James Joyce course in college, so I've uh, I, I I even. Uh, I, I guess read parts of Finnegan's Wake. But, no way. But like, re re there's okay. a difference between reading and like, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I understood anything. I, I like his uh, short stories. Me too. Um, the, the Dead, The Dead, yeah. Yeah, I love ones. that. And um, I like Faulkner, Absalom. Absalom is a, is a fine book. But would you, uh, is there something Heidegger connected in a book you would recommend or no? <laughs> no, so maybe I got to abandon him. I mean, I, I mean, being in time is, is awesome. Um, but here's an interesting thing, and not to get all academic-y, but you know, it's there's two parts to it, and most of the most philosophers are preoccupied with the first part. It's in the second part where he gets into all the flight from death stuff and this idea of, uh, you know, a turning and philosophers don't like that. Uh, and I'm like, this is where he's starting to <laughs> really shine to really shine for me. So, yeah. 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 All right. That's a beautiful set of books. So what, um, advice would you give to a young person today about their career, about life, about, uh, how to survive in this world full of suffering. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> my advice is to get competent advice. <laughs> That's my, what I tell my students. It's different. Like, don't listen to me. Yeah, don't listen to me. Well, you know, I think um, my, my big piece of advice these days is, you know, again, it's at the risk of sounding like a simpleton but it's to emphasize a few things. One is, um, you know, so, uh, one of your questions, I think, was, you know, what's the meaning of life? And, of course, the existentialists say life has no meaning, but it doesn't follow from that, that it's intrinsic, that it's meaningless. You know, what the existential point is not that life is meaningless so much as it doesn't have one inevitable and intrinsic meaning, you know, which then it opens up, uh, you know, I think it was Kierkegaard who said consciousness gives us the possibility of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And, but there's another lunatic, Oswald Spangler, who wrote a book called uh, Decline of the West. Mm -hmm. And he says that the philosopher, the German philosopher Goethe, he says the purpose of life is to live. And I that's so that's one of my pieces of advice. So is, the the possibility of possibilities, it's interesting. So what do you do with this kind of sea of possibilities? Like, well, this is one of the when when young folks talk to me, especially these days, yep. uh, is they're swimming in a sea of possibilities. Yeah. Well, so this it's great, and so that's another existential point, which is that we yearn for freedom. We react vigorously when we perceive that our choices have been curtailed, and then we're paralyzed by indecision in the wake of seemingly unlimited possibilities because we're not choking on choice. 
And and I'm not sure if this is helpful advice or not, but what I say to folks is that the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, for most people, choice is a first world problem. And sometimes the best option is to do something as silly as it sounds. And then if that doesn't work, do something else, which just sounds like my mom torturing me uh, when (laughs) I was young. But, you know, part of the thing that uh, I find myself singularly ill-equipped is that we're at the, I may be at the tail end of the last generation of Americans where you like picked something and that's what you did. Like I've been at a job for 40 years where you can expect to do better than your parents because those days are gone and where you can make a comfortable inference that the world in a decade or two will have any remote similarity to the one that we now inhabit. And so, but still you recommend just do. Yeah. And to do so, I'm again, I'm this is I'm so back to the Heidegger guy because all right, I may you know, I consider myself a professor, but what happens if most of the schools go out of business? Somebody else may consider themselves a, a restaurateur, but what happens if there's no more restaurants? So what I this is negative advice, but I tell folks, don't define yourself as a social caricature. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't limit how you feel about yourself by, uh, through identification with a host of variables that may be uncertain. Maybe temporary. And temporary. What, uh, oh, sorry. No, but of course that gets back to your point earlier, Lex, where you're like, yeah, but when you step out of that, it's extraordinarily discombobulating. So what, uh, I think you talked about an ax of chopping wood. And, yeah. Uh, and soul uh, from Socrates. Yeah. What is your soul? What is the, uh, the essence of Sheldon? Wow, that was like awesome. Like when God, uh, when you, when you show up at the end of this thing, he kind of looks at you. He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> I remember you." Yeah, well, you know, I, to be honest, uh, what I muse about is to me the when when people are I told you i have two, we have two kids uh late 20s early 30s and over the years when people when we meet people that know our kids and they're like oh your kids are kind and decent and i'd be like that's what i would like to be <laughs> because i think intelligence is vastly overrated you know the unabomber was a smart guy yeah and I do admire intelligence, and I do venerate education, and I, I find that to be tremendously important 
But if I had to pay the ultimate homage to myself, it would be to be known as somebody who takes himself too seriously to take myself too seriously. Again, as corny as it sounds, I'd like to leave the world a tad better than I found it, or at least do no harm. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I think you, I think you did all right on that. Uh, so, in, in that regard, I, I love that question, Alex. That's a good one. I think everyone should be asked that. <laughs> what is your soul? Do you have uh, maybe just a few lingering questions uh, around it? So, I mean, on, on the on the point of the soul, you, you've talked about uh, the meaning of life. Do you have, um, on a personal level, do you have uh, a, an answer to the meaning of your life, of something that brought you uh, meaning, uh, happiness, uh, some some sense of uh, sense. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, yes, I, yes and no. I mean, I, uh, a bit, you know, I'm 66, so I'm in the kind of not ready to wrap it up, literally or metaphorically, but you look, I look back and just really with a, a sense of uh, awe and wonder gratitude and is there memories that stand out to you from childhood from earlier that like it's like you know stand out as something you're really proud of or um just happy to have been on this earth mainly that stuff happened yeah that i mean you know my family um also a chunk uh, where my folks and my grandparents are from Eastern Europe, you know, Russia, Austria. Um, as far as we know, some of them never made it out. Uh, I consider um, myself um, very fortunate to have been a so-called product of the American dream. You know, my grandparents are were basically peasants. My parents my dad worked two full-time jobs um when i was growing up and i would see him on the weekends i'd be like why are you working all the time he'd be like so you won't have to and he said look the world does not owe you a living and so your first responsibility is to take care of yourself and then your next responsibility is to take care of other people and um, I think you did a pretty good job of that. Well, I, I don't know, but I, 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 <laughs> I had, so that those are the things that I'm proud of. Well, it's, it's funny. You, you've been, you've, you've talked about just yourself as a human being, but uh, you've also contributed some really important ideas for your ideas and also kind of integrating and maybe even popularizing the work of Ernest Becker, of connecting it, uh, of making it legitimate scientifically. I mean, you know, as a human, of course, you want to be, uh, you, you want your ripple to be one that makes the world a better place. But also I think 
in the span of time, I think it's of great value what you've contributed in terms of how we think about the human condition, how we think about ourselves as, human, as uh, finite beings in this world. And I hope also in our technology of engineering intelligence, I think um, at, least, at least for me, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people uh, like me that your work has been a gift for, so. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, uh, no, I, I like that. And, and we have described ourselves as giant interneurons. Uh, I'm like, we have had no original ideas and uh, and maybe that's the only thing that's original about our work is we don't claim to be original. What we claim <laughs> to have done yeah. is to integrate yeah. to connect these disparate and superficially unconnected discourses. You know, so existentialists, they'd be like, evidence, what's that? And yeah, there's now a branch of psychology, experimental existential psychology that I think we could take credit for having encouraged the formation of. And that in turn, has gotten these ideas in circulation in academic communities where they may not have otherwise gotten. So I think that's good. Well, Sheldon, it's a huge honor. I can't believe you came down here. <laughs> I've been a fan of your work. Uh, I hope we get to talk again. Huge honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for talking today. Thanks, Lex. We'll do it again soon, I hope. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Sheldon Solomon. And thank you to our sponsors, Blinkist, ExpressVPN, and Cash App. Click the links in the description to get a discount. It's the best way to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now let me leave you with some words from Vladimir Nabokov that Sheldon uses in his book, Warm at the Core. The cradle rocks above an abyss. And common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.